Today, there's trouble in the land of Lilliput, and the best thing about the current WWE is their retrospectives. And to join me to talk about all this, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you, he's the man who always looks back because he's ahead of the pack, the great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. I didn't know if I was going to be here because of all the backstage drama here at Arcadian Vanguard with the Cornette show and everything else. Oh, my God. I'll tell you, there's the two camps, <laughs> the, 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 the pro-serious podcasting and the pro-jack-off podcasting. There's the Kippelman camp. <laughs> and then there's the, the camp of Kippelman. <laughs> he took my gimmick. I was Camp Cornette. Not Camp Kippelman. Who named the Camp Cornette? I don't know. I do, It somehow just came up one day. It's Camp Cornette. I'm like, okay. I've, you know, maybe Camp Crystal Lake was booked. I don't know. Uh, but it just, it, it turned out that I was, there was no uh, input given from me on a name of the group nor solicited from me. Camp Cornette, that makes you the head counselor, obviously. Actually, I wanted to be the 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 archery counselor that was kind of the or the arts and crafts guy that was kind of the cool guy, not one of the military jarhead counselors, but the cool one that all the all the nice kids would go and talk to. So you pick something you're good at. You're good with a bow and arrow. I'm pretty deadly with a bow. From when I was in camp, I had a cool archery counselor. He was part Indian, I'll have you know, Native American Indian, not Middle Eastern Indian. And and the only reason we call them Indians here, I guess, is because Columbus had a shitty sense of direction. But we digress. So I got pretty pretty deadly with the bow and arrow. When I was a kid in camp, <laughs> I can't believe this happened. Bar- when I was a kid in camp, and you already you're already laughing. I'm already laughing because it's amazing this happened. This was in the early '80s. Bar H day camp in Oceanside, New York. It's now long gone, but they had these karate guys coming in and teaching us basic karate moves as little kids. You know, four, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. And I remember one of the kids asking, because Karate Kid was the big thing. Not that, not that this was in Karate Kid, but could you kill a man with karate? And one of the guys was like, yeah, sure. What you would do is you stick your two fingers right in their throat and you oh, hook no. it and you pull out. <laughs> and that was the last time we ever saw those karate guys. <laughs> they <laughs> Oh, at least I was 11 when Bruce Lee got hot. So I had a little more. Oh, the karate kid was cool, though. But they're teaching five-year-old kids how to pull people's goozle pipes out. Well, it wasn't in the curriculum. It wasn't part of the schedule. It just happened that a question sent the, it was like the drive-thru, a question sent karate class down an errant path. Extra credit question for the, uh... (laughs) no, we didn't, we didn't do that at my summer camp. And uh, thankfully, that was before Bruce Lee got over. Or elsewise, we might have been kicking each other in the balls and doing the Tongan fucking eye poke or whatever it was. Did you see Enter the Dragon when it first came out? Of course. In the theater. In the theater. Your mom brought you to see it? 
Uh, not by my cousin Larry. I was going to say, I want to know if your mom sat there through Edge of the Dragon. That's what I was well, curious no, about. She, she, she got roped into taking me to a few, because Kung Fu movies were the shit between, what was it, 1972 and 74? And my cousin Larry even took some Taekwondo. And, and they were sparring one day, and this girl hauled off and just kicked him right in the fucking balls as hard as she could accidentally. That movie was uh, like the biggest boon to karate schools across the country. Oh, that, that's what that's what he was doing there. And, he, and then he laid himself open with the nunchucks when he he had him in his car and he tried to pull him out to show my mom. And she she had told him, if you get those, Larry, you're going to bust your head open. And so he gets this nice pair of black shellacked la uh, laminated. I don't know what fuck the slick shit. And he and boy, they're just fan. And he's got where he can do a little bit of, you know, business with them. And they're in his car, and he's got this little sports car, and he wants to show them to my mom. And he goes to pull them out, and one side got hung in between the seats or whatever, and he jerked it, and it popped out and laid his head open right in the garage, right, right in front of the mice in the garage and everybody. And my mom's standing there at the screen door and she sees him gushing blood and she starts laughing because <laughs> she had told him exactly what he was the most accident prone individual that you've ever seen in your life. Anyway, he was trying to clap, you know, those cemetery fences, the old fashioned stuff. And this was back in the, my God, it would have been maybe 1959, 60, this happened, but the, the spiked ironwork, Around the old cemeteries, right? Are you are you going to agree with me, or are you trying to mentally picture this? I mean, you say old cemeteries. We see those around all sorts of cemeteries in the New York tri-state area. I know what you're talking about. Well, they're, they're all old up there. Nobody uses the good real estate for to bury people anymore. Uh, up there, it's so expensive. But anyway, he he's trying to climb and get something out of a tree, and he's climbing this fence, and he slips off of it, and he falls, and he hangs himself. Oh my through God. his side. <laughs> oh my God. It, it didn't just go in. He didn't Im like impale himself straight through. He somehow lucked out and it caught skin only, but went through his side and back out. And, and he was hanging there and his brother was down on the ground and he's good. Brother, brother, help me, help me. And his brother, Richard ran off and he, he <laughs> ran home because <laughs> he was like, well, I mean, he's a year younger or whatever, and he's, so he's eight, and he's probably like, well, fuck, I can't do anything about this. I need reinforcements. So he runs home and screams uh, to my mom, to my Aunt Lola, Mom, Mom, Larry's hung himself. What? <laughs> well, meanwhile, Larry's pried himself off the deal, and he's held his hands around his injuries, and he runs home, and my Hey, poor Aunt Lola, who wouldn't say boo to a goose, and is the mo was the most just. She wasn't faint-hearted, but she just. Oh, she reminded me of Aunt Clara on Bewitched sometimes when she'd get all flibberty gibbet. Well, she's about to have a daggum fainting spell because there's blood everywhere, and she says, "Rich, Rich, call pops and tell him we're taking Larry to the hospital." And so okay, now Richard calls my my uncle Tommy at work at the at the factory somehow gets through to him then the then he gets on the phone and Aunt Lola is saying hurry hurry we gotta go so all he says is 
Pops, we're going to the hospital. Larry's killed himself and hangs up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and then they fixed him up and, and Pops got home and found out that he was still alive. And he was like, well, all right. I miss all the good stuff. What were we talking about? So you never wanted to take a karate class, though? Oh, uh, well, I took a couple. I'm like fucking, what, nine, ten, whatever it was. I took a couple with the kids class thing, but I preferred going to the drive-in and watching the movies. And that's where most of them were back in those days, at the drive-in. Either, either that or downtown at the penthouse theater where they debuted The Wrestler, and you didn't want to go there except under extreme circumstances in broad daylight back in those days. It's now the Louisville Palace, one of the ritziest places in town. It wasn't ritzy back then. Did they gut the inside, or is it one of the things where there were elements of it they were able to not only no, bring back to life, but bring to a life that it never had before? Uh, well, no, it had a life. It had, it had just been dormant for a year. It was originally, oh my God, it was one of the original movie houses, the grand movie palaces of the 20s in Louisville. And it may have been, it was the United Artists, I believe, as a matter of fact, because it had all of the uh, the 20s and 30s ornate skyline and the ceilings. And you know what I'm talking about. Um, all the, the, they used to build those ornate movie houses all over the place when movies were the biggest thing in, in the world. And, but in his, the 50s and 60s, it had fallen into disrepair. And what they did was they split it they had the downstairs theater, the United Artists, and then they it was so tall originally that they made an upstairs theater and called it the penthouse, and it had a smaller screen, and they used the balcony for that. And they and this whole fucking former glorious place just went to complete shit. And finally, some investors in, I believe, the late 80s, I, I could tell a lie here, but at some point, uh, bought it, and they tore it back out and renovated all the the old movie house, you know, backgrounds and cityscapes and the twinkling skylights and all that stuff, and, and it looks glorious. But the seats are still only 18 inches wide, so you got to jam in like a sardine to go see anything there. All right. People used to have more narrow asses back in those days. And the theaters used to make money. I forgot this is my show, isn't it? I'm waiting for you to do something. <laughs> now, now I know how you feel. I'm so I'm sorry. Well, you may hear some intermittent hammering today, ladies and gentlemen. Just a light. That's the forecast for today. Light intermittent hammering with a possible chance of uh, sawing later on. Whereas siding and trim are being done today outside. So hopefully it'll be kept to a minimum, the noise. But I know how you get, Brian. You want to make sure we have the best audio of any podcast out there. To do that, you're going to have to give me a voice transplant. Or a hammer transplant, apparently. Um, please hammer, don't hurt him. Remember the hammer time. <laughs> anyway. Well, you know what, can I just say something? In, uh, I guess it would have been like 96, when Kevin Sullivan was feuding with Benoit, and Chris had Nancy, for a short while, and I thought it was awesome, Kevin had Jacqueline. Jackie. Yeah. And for some reason, and I've never asked Kevin, and I probably should, but when Kevin and Jackie were briefly together and they would do their promos together and they would be fired up, the catchphrase they used was, we're too legit to quit. 
<laughs> which <got laughs> me the fuck up. Because this is 96, and what, Hammer released in what, 92? So, too legit to quit. Kevin Sullivan and Jackie. <laughs> All righty then. Um, well, speaking of being released... There's something that's about to be released. As a matter of fact, it's going to escape. And I broke this fabulous news on your program, The Drive-Thru, but I will let the people, the cult of Cornette, in on the big news here on the flagship show, The Experience. The, the slow boat from China is about to dock, ladies and gentlemen, and get them while they're hot and while we can. The next round of action figures from Figures Toy Company, the official Jim Cornette figures are almost here and go on sale at jimcornette.com on Saturday, September 17th, my birthday, the anniversary of my expulsion into the world. And I've come up with a brilliant way, and you you heard me, Brian, I did it right in front of you on the drive-thru. I've come up with a brilliant way for everybody to have their cake See what I did there? And eat it too on my birthday. Because every year, countless people, I can't imagine how many people, ask me, what in the world can you get Jim Cornette for his birthday? What can we get you, Jim? You've got everything. What can we get a man who has everything except penicillin? And this way, if you buy yourself a brand new, never-before-seen Jim Cornette action figure from jimcornette.com on Saturday, September 17th, then that will be my birthday present, and you get a free action figure out of it. Brian, is this brilliant marketing? Is this an no. amazing have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too kind of thing? Seems kind of sleazy to me. What are you talking about? This way, instead of just buying me something and just only having the satisfaction of actually having given me something for my birthday to commemorate that great day, this way... Everybody gets something, and you get a free action figure. I think it's genius. I think it's brilliant. Did your accountant tell you this was brilliant? Well, you know, I'm so my accountant. <laughs> I'm not that depth. <laughs> well, my accountant, unfortunately, I haven't been able to speak to him in a few weeks. He lost his privileges. They won't let him have phone privileges <laughs> for at least four more weeks. But nevertheless, uh, yes, Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern. These have never before been seen. They are new variants. I mentioned them on the drive-thru. I will briefly go through them here. Brian, you already know the answer to this. One of the greatest moments of my career. The bloody variant back in uh, April sold out 1,200 of them in 36 hours, commemorating Heyman hit me over the head with the phone. Well, now, another great moment in my career, actually more pleasing to me than getting cracked over the phone or over the phone cracked over the head. I wish it had been over the phone. It wouldn't hurt as bad cracked over the head with that brick cell phone. My debut outfit in 1993 on Monday night raw, when I was welcomed with a hearty hug by Bobby, the brain Heenan, the pink and red suit comes complete with glasses, microphone and tennis racket. I am now popular enough to have my own tennis racket. They didn't know other figure that Figures Toy Company produces has a tennis racket, but me. And there will be less than 1,500 of these that will be sold at jimcornett.com and signed exclusively and personally for you. So Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern, and you'll be able to see pictures of the figures 
on September the 1st. If you go to jimcornett.com, to the main page, there'll be a big banner. And everybody wants to know what is the perfect Christmas gift for the family member or friend or enemy or frenemy in your social circle. Just in time for Christmas, Santa Corny is here, the new Christmas variant, the new improved Christmas variant. I mentioned I wasn't happy with the first one. The no good son of a guns over there forgot to paint my handkerchief. So we're doing another run, and this time we've revamped it. We've switched the colors. It's going to be a red jacket and green pants, but the red and green suit with glasses, microphone, tennis racket, and a Santa hat. Every figure has a Santa hat, and by gum, I will either say Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug to you or your friend or enemy, whichever you prefer, on the customized personalization, and there's going to be a little less than 1,500 of those, and the same date and same time, Saturday, September 17th at noon Eastern, and you can see pictures of that on September 1st. Brian, it's going to be a merry, corny Christmas. Santa Corny and the pink and red Raw debut uh, outfit just in time for the... Everybody has the holidays at the same time. Even if you celebrate your Christmases, your Hanukkahs, your Chanukas, as Smokey Robinson would say, your Kwanzas, whatever the case may be. Well, if you order on Saturday, September 17th, I've got enough time to sign all these son of a guns and get them to you. And the feather bottoms are standing by. How many can we put you down for, Brian? I'm not sure, but I think the really cool thing is the fact that they had those error ones, the ones that weren't pink and red. They ended up being red and pink. And you could use those now for when you quit the booking committee under Jim Hurd. And your face was red. Uh-huh. You, you had all that time to work on something, and that's what you came up with there. That's my way of saying I'm not buying any of them. Well, goddammit, you don't want to give me a Christmas present. Well, you didn't say it was a Christmas present. First, it was buy me a birthday present. Well, no, the And the then pretend th that you're getting a, a free figure so I can go get pizza. And yeah, then the, the Raw debut suit is the birthday present, and Santa Corny is the Christmas present. But you need to get them ahead of time because it's going to take me a while to sign them as usual. But everything is done to order. But nevertheless, so you can buy me a birthday present and a Christmas present this year, and actually have something for it. Get a free action figure for buying me a present. That See, that's the way to spread goodwill around the world. However, when people think about you and parties or celebrations or something where you would be given a present, they usually think about you and cake. What about a spring action figure where the face goes right into the cake? Well, the problem is then if it just keeps... Going into the... You'd have to re-ice the cake every time. If it was just a plastic cake, it wouldn't... It wouldn't have the impact. So you'd have to constantly re-ice the cake. When are we going to get the Jim Cornette Bill Watts playset? Um, Jesus Christ, as soon as I get jaw surgery to uh, reinforce my jawbone. Can you imagine? That, that could have been the G.I. Joe with Kung Fu grip, except if it slapped instead of Kung Fu, he could just knock the other guy's head off. Or that could like a Rock'em Sock'em robot neck. I'll have the Rock'em Sock'em robot neck, and Watts has the Kung Fu slap. How come one of the early tapings when you're there, like for the rest of them, he's kind of dressed like, you know, mid-40s businessman Bill Watts, 
But one of them, he dresses like Buffalo Bob. He's just like, he has a yeah. little vest on. I know. The, 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 what, what was it? What color? Would it, it wasn't a tan, but kind like of a light colored leather vest. Yeah. yeah. And a string bolo tie. I don't know. Maybe and he had uh, he had to stop by a rodeo on the way in or something. But he was Cowboy Bill Watts. He looked like Bill Watts hosting a kid's show. Cowboy Bill. And his romper room of uh, romper room rats. I don't know. Anyway, what do we got going on here today? We're going to talk about the AEW a little bit later and, and all the strife going on, not only on television, but behind the cameras. And we're also going to talk about the biography episode on DX and the Rivals episode on Mick Foley and his various personas and Triple H, I mentioned none of the current WWE programs are as, in any way as interesting and exciting and or even potentially controversial as the retrospectives. I mean, you know, I, I see people saying, well, WWE starting to be the cool promotion with momentum now. I, you know, is this a turtle race? Is this the... Every year before the Kentucky Derby, they have the run, you know, which is the run for the roses. They have the run for the rodents here at uh, at the college. and But those rats are quick. This is more like a turtle race. The tortoise against the tortoise for momentum. Because I'm still, you know, I, I know there's, and we're going to talk about it in a second, there's been a few changes or uh, some of the rules have been alleviated in the WWE programming. but you you know they can't turn the the Titanic or a battleship or whatever the appropriate simile is on a dime, so it's little baby steps over there. But meanwhile, as I was about to say, some people are ascribing WWE having more momentum now to AEW's woes, but I think AEW is suffering from self-inflicted paper cuts all over their body. Yeah, and you know what? It hasn't happened yet, because this is all kind of a brand new situation, but when we finally see an AEW star, not someone that was barely used on TV or anything, but an actual star jump to WWE, that's going to be the interesting moment. Does it cause other people to do it, or does everyone stay still? Because there is a perception among some people right now that at least with Triple H, you get some stability for whatever well that's worth. <laughs> And also, who else are they going to pick? It's not like it's Vince where he's going to, you know, give Bishop three months or Heyman six weeks or whatever. Ah, I changed my mind. You know, Triple H is going to have that job for a while, uh, barring any unforeseen circumstances. So, such as getting hit by a bus. I think that'd be the only thing right now that would take him out of it. But before we get to all the modern wrestling, I got a couple of things out of the files. And one of them I'm going to support. You don't know about it. Well, you know about this document. It was talked about at the time and very famous in wrestling, but you don't know that I have it. Do you remember, Brian, last when Joe Pettacino found his rich oh, Nigerian wow. backer and was going to start the Global Wrestling Federation and was talking to every promoter not named Vince McMahon in the world, was actually at one point going to buy the USWA, the Memphis wrestling promotion from Jerry Jarrett. Remember that? 
1991, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, they even did. That's when I left WCW. I came up and did a TV taping that they did at the Louisville Gardens, and Pettacino was there, and his backer, Olu Oliami, was there. I've mentioned he looked like a Nigerian Louis Armstrong. He was a short little pudgy fellow with big cheeks. And that's how Pettacino got hooked up with the Sportatorium in Dallas and the big plans, and they went on um, ESPN. And the whole thing was based on this Olu Oliami telling Joe that he had up to $25 million to, uh, to not contribute, but to invest in running this global wrestling federation, right? And the thing that was helping Joe talk to people and get people's attention, it, if not their outright slavish devotion because they bought it, you know, all the way. Joe was telling people that he, Olu Oliami had furnished him a letter of credit from a bank for $25 million, right? You remember this story, Brian. Of course, it's a pretty notorious story. What do you think that is? I didn't know you had the document. That's a copy of the letter of credit for $25 million. That Joe Pettacino copied and gave me to convince me that this thing was going to happen. And Brian, this the, the letter is dated September 27, 1990. Joe gave it to me after I left WCW, which was about a month later. So sometime at the end of that year, beginning of 1991, when I was already uh, coming over, making some shots in, in the Memphis territory anyway. and. Even at the age of, of, of the 29 years old, even though I'd, I'd seen a few things and heard a few things, I wasn't no big-time financial expert. But this, to me, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt Joe's feelings because this wasn't, this wasn't one of those cases where the shady promoter has this phony letter of credit and he's trying to bilk people. I think a lot of people may have told you this. Joe Pettacino believed this wholeheartedly, whether it was smoking hopium or just it, it was his dream come true. He believed this. And it was like, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. But can I read you some of this? You tell me, Brian Lass, because you're the next best thing to Warren Buffett. Does this sound like a letter of, of credit authorization from a bank for $25 million to you? All right, let's hear it. Brian, you might want to Google a little bit while I'm reading this because this uh, the bank that this is drawn on is the First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited at 1300 Jefferson Boulevard in Warwick, Rhode Island. I have a phone number here as well if that helps. They have offices in New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Tampa, Dallas, and Cleveland. Give me the name of the bank again. First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited, Warwick, Rhode Island. And this letter dated, as I said, September 27, 1992. Mr. J, not like Jay Briscoe, but J, the letter to J. Olu Oliami, president of Kongi Sports and Entertainment Incorporated, K-O-N-G-I. And this was apparently the 
sports and entertainment company that uh, Mr. Oliami convinced Joe Petticino was an ongoing concern with $25 million spent in the wrestling business. And it is reinvestment funding of $25 million for wrestling and entertainment promotions. Dear Mr. Oliami, we are happy to inform you that after a careful review of your business plans and the extensive background of your management staff, <laughs> together with supporting financial documents, a decision has been made by our trustees to make available a line of credit of $25 million, in parentheses, the numbers, $25 million. Terms. The credit shall be enforced for a term of five years with interest-only payments during this period on a drawn-down basis at our option and your payment of the interest as set forth under rate below the loan may be converted to a long-term debt equity portfolio. Now, see right there, everybody in the wrestling business, every wrestler, every manager, referee, whatever, as soon as they read that, well, they're, in, they're lost already, right? Unless you hit the stray one that took finances in school somehow. Rate. The notes on the use portion shall bear interest at U.S. Prime plus 2%, such rate to be computed and adjusted annually. In the event the credit line is not converted as proposed, all principal amount or the used portion shall be paid up at the end of five years together with the accrued interest, if any. And they've kind of lost me too by this point, because does this make sense, Brian? I know it's not copy and paste because of the year, but it just sounds like they copy and pasted something from a whole bunch of different things and put it together. Yes, use of funds. The use of funds shall include, but not limited to, A, acquisitions of some existing wrestling federation, B, marketing, TV productions, promotions, and syndications, C, payroll and merchandising, etc. Management must furnish our trust with progress reports as to the performance of the company every quarter. These reports shall be comprised of operating statements and updates on staffing. Prepayment clause. This loan could be prepaid at any time after the initial two years of the loan. Any prepayment prior to this time shall carry a 2% penalty. Collateral. What are they putting up for collateral? Yeah. So I've been waiting for. The loan shall be collateralized by liens on all assets of J. Olu Oliami, including corporate and personal, as applicable. All syndication rights, merchandising, and products rights together with any other assets of Kongi Sports Incorporated or other collateral deemed, ne- deemed needed. So that was a half a sentence. Personal as applicable was period. And then all syndication rights, merchandising, and products rights together with any other assets of Kongi Sports Incorporated or other collateral deemed needed. General terms. We understand that your company will be able to secure all necessary licenses and permits to facilitate effective operations of a wrestling promotion. This commitment is irrevocable and shall remain in force for a period of 120 days and subject to the conditions of collateral misspelled requirements. Closing shall take place on or before this initial period. All or any confirmations of this commitment 
could be made by phone call or in writing as may be authorized. We are looking forward to an amicable working relationship. Best regards, the president of First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited is apparently a fellow or was in 1990 named R. Mansfield Leach. Leach. Banker Leach. The address you gave in Warwick, Rhode Island. 1300 Jefferson Boulevard. Was that for him or the bank? That was for First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited. Okay, this is a, it's a two-story office with a warehouse. (laughs) They didn't have this back then, this technology where you could just look it up and it's a bunch of trucks in the parking lot. Well, now, wait, they could have torn this big, big bank with offices in New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Tampa, Dallas, and Cleveland down and put up a warehouse in 30 years. That's true. It could have been this. Is there? It could have been that this industrial zone at one point was the business zone. Of Warwick, Rhode Island. Of Warwick, Rhode Island. Well, it's a small state, a small town. Is there a First Fidelity Revenue Trust Limited? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, There's no bank or anything with that name. Okay, there's a phone number. Oh. I'm not going to call. Well, we can call it if you wanted to, but let's. Well, uh, it would be. It's 30 years after the right, fact. But right. here's the thing. If they were going to make up a fake bank at an address that back 30 years ago, unless you were in Warwick, Rhode Island, you couldn't really trace. Why would they put a phone? Maybe they had somebody manning the phone. Hello? In the warehouse. Revenue Trust. Yeah, in the warehouse. 401-732. Uh, well, I won't go any further. It'll just cause somebody else problems. But this letter is not only what Joe Petticino was hanging his hopes and dreams on and trying to buy wrestling promotions. But this also is what I was trying to do Joe a favor. He, you know, and he got me booked with the LPWA to do commentary that year. I was setting up Smoky Mountain Wrestling, made me some extra money. I was trying to do him a favor, but I, from the time I saw this fucking guy in person and then read this document, that's why, you know, and then the, we, he brought us to Dallas and I didn't think he was going to screw me on money that he agreed to pay me, and he didn't. But he brought me and Stan to Dallas for that one taping. And we fly in from Charlotte, and we weren't charging him that much money, but we had mentioned, okay, he's getting a hotel too, right? And we got our own rental car to go from the Dallas airport down to the Sportatorium and back. But we go to this hotel that he's got the guys staying at. And I'd lived there for six months, you know, what, five years previously, and I'd never even gotten off this exit. It was in between the airport and downtown Dallas. And it's this fucking old roadside motel that I don't know what kind of business was normally going on there, but it didn't look from the outside like I was going to like the inside. And when I opened it, and he had us rooming with other people and like doubling up and went, no, Stan got his room. I get my room. That's our deal. Um, but I opened the door to the room and there was one table lamp in this entire room. There was this small window that jutted out into the, or opened out into the courtyard, which was shaded from the sun by nearby buildings. And there was not one other functioning light in the whole hotel room, except for in the bathroom. So it was like walking into a fucking cave. You couldn't see the dirt. And we turned around and went back to the La Quinta that we used to stay at in the the, uh, world-class days. And 
when I got there, I told Joe that he had two, two extra rooms at the fall and crawl motel. And, and we had a nice evening working there. And, and then that's, I think shortly after that, he found out that first fidelity revenue trust limited and Mr. Oliami and Mr. Leach probably didn't weren't all they were cracked up to be. And he cut the budget and that's when, when the, the I guess what was it was global wrestling. That's when he got into um, got into business with the syndic Max Andrews, wasn't it? Or That's was right. it? Yeah, yeah, the syndicator for some of the other world class shows, and they and soldiered Jarrett, on for a it, while. Was he syndicating Jarrett? At well, yeah, when, at that time, yeah. When the Von Erichs tried to talk Jerry Jarrett into taking over world class and revamping the business, then Max Andrews was the syndicator, and then. The Von Erichs didn't want Jerry Jarrett to take over the business after he did, and he gave it back to him. And then they went, yeah. I think only one Von Erich wanted Jerry Jarrett to come in and save the business. The other two resented him. Well, at least one of them resented him being there, Kevin. But Fritz obviously well, wanted Jerry Jarrett to be there. They well, I, I wanted him to be there. He sold him his shares of the company. Yeah, I, th I think he, he wanted him to take that rotten turkey a week after Thanksgiving off of his hands, but... Anyway, I got one more thing here to read real quick. Just uh, bopping through. I found one of the agent reports for Madison Square Garden. And remember we talked about that uh, in 95 and 96, even the garden had been on its ass. Uh, but then, uh, and we, we talked uh, uh, just this past week on the drive-thru about some of the other documents I'd found in the files, how when Shawn Michaels had his reign as champion, the numbers weren't exactly stellar. But then all of a sudden, uh, Shawn, Brett came back, Undertaker got put on top, and then here comes Steve Austin. So this was January 10th, 1998's Madison Square Garden show. Take a guess at the house in dollars. January 10th, 1998. The main event was advertised as Undertaker and Steve Austin against Shawn Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, but then, as they did a lot in those days, they changed the whole card around. But what do you think the gate was? I have no idea. I don't remember what, the, what a gate would have been for the Garden at that point. $371,003. Wow. This was at a it, when, again, I think September 1995 in the the most drismal dregs of the WWF business, the garden got down to like a hundred and I think it was 95, $146,000. And that meant they basically paid money to put that show on with ex as expensive as the garden and the uh, associated costs were. And then, you know, once again, when they started getting hot and everything, and now the revamped main event was, Double main event, actually, six-man cage match, Undertaker and Legion of Doom against Shawn Michaels and the New Age Outlaws, and no DQ falls count anywhere, Steve Austin and Cactus Jack against Rocky Maivia and D'Lo Brown, the Nation of Domination. And I loved this as it, when it happened, because remember, it was Madison Square Garden, and we'll talk about this in the Rivals episode later on, where Cactus Jack re-debuted as Cactus Jack in the WWF when he'd been Mankind, 
and then he'd been dude love and Kevin Dunn was there in the production meeting. Well, no, nobody's going to know Cactus Jack here in New York in the garden because he was a WCW guy. By the time that they played that video, and it was apparent on the Rivals episode, by the time they played that video in the garden of First Mankind and then Dude Love, when Cactus walked in, they did the split-screen, split-personality deal, the people roared and started chanting, Cactus Jack, Cactus Jack. So Cactus was the perfect face of Foley to me for Madison Square Garden for the people in New York, because that's that's who he was when they really first knew about him being as New York was the center of the smart universe, right? You can testify to that. Yeah. I mean, if you were someone went to the WCW show at the Paramount, I was a few thousand people. You knew Cactus Jack. If you were an ECW fan, you knew Cactus Jack. If you watched wrestling on TV in New York, he was on every, think about it. Every promotion that aired in New York, he was on at one point or another. UWF. Yeah. I mean, everything. And I guarantee you that the only promotion that Kevin Dunn even knew existed were WCW for obvious reasons and ECW because, you know, of the constant uh, blather we would get about what ECW was doing from shit stain and associated parties. He didn't know any of those other promotions even existed or had ever done anything. But nevertheless, we're back to the garden. 15,712 with 3,736 comps for $371,003. Hey, can I stop you That ain't quick? bad. Yes. What's the date again? January 10, 1998. And when did they run last in 97 at the Garden? Because um, they usually had a Christmas show in earlier years. I don't remember if they did one the year before. You know, because this is just the agent report and not my booking book. I do not have the last date information. All right, I'll look it up. You can look it up. Uh, I mean, and I'm just going to bop through it a bit because there's there was a couple of things. The opening match, Taka Michinoku against Brian Christopher. Uh, and Taka rolled him up. And Tony Gurria is reporting. He's the agent uh, reporting these details on this show. And uh, nice little pop on the finish, he said. They had country whipping match, headbangers versus the Godwins. When the Godwins beat the headbangers. Uh, Tom Brandy versus Marvelous Mark Merrow ended in disqualification because Merrow was switching heel at that point, right? And and just nutshotted Brandy right in front of the referee. And then uh, Merrow hit Brandy with the TKO after the announcement. Uh, Gurria's comments, I thought the match was fair, needs some improvement there, but otherwise it went okay. And that's about as effusive as Gurria ever got. Um with uh, praising anything that he couldn't really find anything to praise about. It was just, it, and it wasn't Tom Brandy. Merrill was just a square peg in a round hole. Uh, they had a challenge match with Ken Shamrock against Farouk, and with Shamrock winning with the belly, belly to belly, and then uh, the nation do a fake breakup so that Rocky can come out and calm him down and shake hands and get the people into it. And then I hadn't, re the reason why I kept this and I hadn't even remembered I did this until I just found it two days ago and read it. They were having a cage match and they had to put the cage up. So I was there and they told me, go out, kill some time, cut a promo. 
So I'm well, what what well, just make something up? So I grabbed Hebner and I said, hey, do something with me. So I go out and start cutting a promo on what I think is very important, but they're pissing me off because they're building the cage in front of me and I'm trying to look at people and, hey, quit building this cage. I want to talk. And of course, the people are booing that because they want to see the cage match. And I call for the WWF official and here comes Dave Hebner. And Dave Hebner comes out and I start giving him the business and finally he hauls off and nails me. And as Tony says, finally, Dave ended up knocking Cornette on his backside. What a beautiful bump James E. took also. It looks like he's lost weight. Because <laughs> I'd gone on a diet about two months beforehand when I finally got up to 280 and I was like, oh, fuck. The six-man cage match uh, was won by uh, Undertaker and LOD as uh, Undertaker pinned Sean. Then Vader uh, beat, wait a minute, Vader beat Goldust. No. Yeah, oh, yes, Vader did beat Goldust, but listen to this, Tony says, Vader turned, hit Goldust uh, front on with the big belly and chest. Goldust took a bump. Vader went backwards into the rope and knocked Luna off and was to splash Goldust, but it was more of just a cover. <laughs> and he hooked <laughs> a leg like uh, This is Leon's tail end of his time there. Uh, Kane Tombstone Chains. And then in the no DQ falls count anywhere, obviously Austin and Cactus Jack beat Rocky and D'Lo. It ended up with Austin covering Rocky after he got him with the stunner. Farouk and Kama were out there and they were on dude on the outside. They came in the ring and got stunned. Goldust came in and he got stunned. So Austin was basically beating up everybody at that point in time as he should have been. Would you have and, the agent uh, report for the curtain call? You know, well, it it may very well be in there somewhere because I've got all kinds of Finkel reports and a bunch of the, but the papers are just everywhere. So it's hard to differentiate until I sit down and go through everything individually, which I have not had. To, I'm just pulling chunks of shit out now and flipping through it. One of these days, I'll I'll put everything in chronological order. So I'll answer that question in the in the future. Anyway. Real quick, I said we weren't going to talk a lot of current WWE, but Drew McIntyre was making a big uh, splash on the social media, everybody talking about what he said because he actually got to say the forbidden words over and over again until it sounded like he had some Tourette's, right? I'm a wrestler on a wrestling show looking to wrestle. A wrestler on a wrestling show to wrestle. I hate it when people steal my material. Big enough that, well, think about this. It was on TV and in a meeting. Because on one of those Monday Night Raw Cornets commentaries, when I was bemoaning the state of affairs of everything, WCW and WWF at that time, wasn't that my quote? That wrestling fans want to see wrestlers on a wrestling program wrestle? That's right. But it was even before, and the reason why I stuck that in at that particular time was because, oh golly, probably about six months beforehand, we had another one of those meetings that Vince would call, and it wasn't just Vince and the creative team, but it was Vince and me and Bruce and Shitstain and Jim Ross and Shane McMahon's in there, and I'm sure Kevin Dunn was in there, and uh, several high-ranking 
studio executives, whatever, not Hollywood studio, but the WWF studio from over at on Hamilton Avenue. And they're going through the general stuff that we have to take notes on and everything. But Shane McMahon poses the question, well, besides superstars, what should we call our talent? Oh, sure. Entertainer and entertainers came up and uh, superstars and uh, and they're grasping for fucking words. I, and I, I again, I said, well, how about this? Since they're wrestlers wearing wrestling tights and wrestling boots, standing in a wrestling ring and talking about having a wrestling match in a company named the World Wrestling Federation. Why can't we call them wrestlers? And I got the turd look where I looked, everybody looked at me like I had turds hanging out of my mouth. And 25 years later, by cracky, they finally get it. No fan has ever said sports entertainment or sports entertainer or get go to the sports entertainment show. And now they're finally catching up after all this time. It's like, why didn't somebody tell them before? But, I mean, that's that's a positive step just in being able, in all seriousness, being able for the guys to do promos and sound more natural and not try to trip over all this convoluted verbiage and the things they're supposed to call everything instead of non-title match. It's a, you know, what a non-championship opportunity or whatever the fuck that you know Vince was hung up on you'd get a lot more emotion and genuine passion and or just feeling out of guys when they're not trying to trip over their tongue saying prepackaged awkward unwieldy and not very descriptive terminology so that's a positive it's a small thing but if the fans are already you know remarking on it then at least they're paying attention but they've they've got a ways to go with the basic format of their program and also just the fact that they have led people to believe that the matches are the least important part of the show for so long it's going to take a while to turn that around and when you go back and look at the old footage you can see it's not about well it is about the wrestling look different the guys looked more like stars. The shit looked more violent, even though it wasn't as dangerous and it wasn't didn't have as many injuries. But the fans were going ape shit over shit that they sit on their hands for now because they've seen it a million times. And uh, especially when they see people that don't really make a fuck in the overall scheme of things doing it constantly. So that's the thing to me that is exposing what the WWE's doing now is you watch the shit from 20 years ago and the people are going absolutely berserk. You can't watch AEW from 20 years ago because all of them were still wearing fucking diapers and there was no such thing. So they may look nee, to the regular wrestling fan who's seen a lot of this shit, but at least their fans are more excited about what they're watching than the WWE fans are about what they're watching because they've seen shit that looks so much better in the past.
What do you think, Brian? You know, we've talked about just recently on the shows, the fact that there are people tuning in the WWE TV net right now looking for little clues each and every episode as to the influence of Triple H. Dexter Loomis appearing on the show, different people who were let go, being brought back, people you think of are Triple H guys being brought back, and of course people are really hyper-attentive to looking at the words being used or paying attention to the words being used, and that's why using the word wrestler especially as many times as he did, as quickly as he did, yeah. <laughs> is something that people notice because it sounds crazy, but is there any word that people knew Vince McMahon hated more than wrestling or wrestler? No. So, I mean, it's, a, it's not a repudiation of Vince McMahon, but it's certainly interesting. L let me ask you your thoughts on this. If they go down a road where eventually, and a lot of people are going to have to be trained to use the word wrestler, believe it or not, the people <laughs> who had to be trained to talk to Vince E's, the Vince language, are now going to have to be trained not to do that. But what about the idea that on a wrestling show they call them wrestlers, but still when they're doing, when, uh, when Stephanie, when I say they, when a Stephanie or a Triple H are doing press, they still refer to it as sports entertainment. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, it's not like they're going to instantly go the opposite direction and put a ban out on the phrase sports entertainment because they've spent so long establishing that. They look kind of goofy. I think it's obviously great that the wrestlers can actually say we're wrestling or we're wrestlers, uh, but they're probably still going to do sports entertainment for their publicity and their charity appearances or their mainstream functions or whatever. Maybe there'll be some crossover at some point to where people can get back to that. It, it was never a dirty word to the wrestling fans. And actually when, when wrestling is hot, it's not a dirty word to the advertisers either. It's just when it's not hot, when it's not performing, and when it's bleh, it, you know, then you give anybody that wants something uh, to use against wrestling, you give them extra ammunition. But what about belt? There's a lot of these fucking clowns in the business now that, that think that the belts are actually supposed to be called titles and that that's not another Vince-ism from his weirdness. That's what I'm saying. People are going to have to Hand be Hand me that title. What? Get to Jesus Christ. Yeah, people are going to have to be detrained because they've been talking the way to please Vince for such a long period of time. And it will be really interesting to see what else gets rolled out in terms of words they can use all of a sudden on TV. But wrestling and wrestler, who knew we'd see that on yeah. WWE TV nowadays? Well, and we're not advocating for them to be able to say shit 17 times like they do on AEW where they sound so childish and they've already taken the fucking shock value off of it. But it'd be nice if they could use words that actually exist and describe things that they're actually talking about. Hospital, belt, yeah. wrestler, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. I mean, if they're going uh, to cut down on the scripted promos, if they are, you want to also cut down on forcing guys to use words that aren't natural. You want people to talk natural. That'd be the whole point of doing it less or letting guys cut loose a little more. So you want to free them up and not make them use words that make them sound like idiots. Yeah, because a lot of these guys are not stunning public orators to begin with, and then they have to try to memorize some unwieldy turn of a phrase to... to not say something that everybody else would say because it's banned terminology. That's, and then the next thing they need to do, obviously, is, you know, tell the people instead of this is not a, and I guess some guys now they actually want scripts, but this ain't a script. 
These are your points. This is the story you're telling. Put it in your own words and get it across. Interpret the song, oh great musician. Don't just do a cover. Do you think people are rooting for Triple H? Oh, yeah. Def- I mean, uh, again, at least Triple H, even though he's got more multiple millions of dollars than anybody out there in, in podcast or TV land, for the, for the most part, he's still been a, one of the wrestlers, one of the boys. The boys are rooting for him. He'll have a, you know, a, a better understanding of what they go through. The fans, because they liked him. Vince, Vince was never a beloved figure in the WWF. Vince was the announcer, and it wasn't like he had the Lance Russell connection where we love you, Lance. No, he was the announcer, and then he became the evil Mr. McMahon for 25 years. So the really devoted WWE fans are going to be pulling for Triple H more than they would Vince just because they want to see him succeed more than they would have, have had an investment in seeing Vince succeed. And when they first saw Vince, he was already a success. Well, I guess there's two different questions. Do you think they're rooting for Triple H to succeed creatively and uh, as a businessman with WWE? And do you think they're rooting for Triple H against AEW? Do you think people are rooting for one versus another? Or do you think enough people are just saying, I hope we have a healthy wrestling ecosystem with two healthy companies? Or do you think no, people I- are right away rooting for one versus the other? I think all the AEW fans are rooting against the WWE because they're the AEW fans. I think most of the WWE fans don't give a shit because all they're going to watch is WWE and they don't care. And it's not like that their existence is threatened or offended by this little group of indie-rific outlaws over on the other channel. And I think that probably the... Talent in the locker room is is more split along those lines as well. AEW guys, especially the the ones that think that they started this revolution and it's all because of them, they think they're going to take over the world and want to, you know, cut WWE's balls off. And I think most of the guys in the WWE locker room are like, well, at least, you know, some of those guys got jobs, but it's not like it's a threat. So I think it's kind of split that way. Because the WWE fans are by nature not as dedicated and devoted to the whole wrestling business as the folks who will be predisposed to be fans of AEW. The whole point I'm trying to make is that the AEW fans, it's a smaller base group who love all worldwide wrestling. And the WWE fans, it's a larger group that are more casual individually and either like just WWE wrestling or just have a casual understanding of that to begin with. And so the AEW folks on both sides or inside the locker room and in the stands take it more personally, I believe, than the WWE side from both parts. Well, it's going to be interesting as we see a lot of issues in AEW and we've been talking about them for a little while on the show. A lot of people are all of a sudden talking about issues. We've been talking about them for a little while, but as we're seeing that happening there and we're seeing Triple H take the reins at WWE, it's a really interesting period of time right now because, like I said before, as soon as one of these guys jumps back or jumps to WWE, it's going to be really interesting how AEW reacts to that, how AEW fans and how AEW itself reacts to it. And, you, and you're talking about besides Cody because that's already an established But that was before thing. Triple and H we, took and over. We, and that well, and, and that H was before Triple H, and, and now the, the new regime is more wrestler friendly and that's what 
the AEW talent was trying to go for was a wrestler-friendly environment where they can be free to pursue a life of religious freedom, right? Guys signed with NXT years ago to work with Triple H or be a part of that system under Triple H. A lot of guys were afraid of what would happen when they would get around Vince on the main roster because they knew. Well, now the worm has turned again. And speaking of Vince, let's bring this up real quick before we move on. We may have misrepresented what we said about Vince here on the uh, the last time we gave an update on the the NDA and hush money payments. Vince was, as you'll recall, at $14.6 million in the hush money payments to disgruntled, offended, or, uh, uh, I don't know, abused women or whatever, the, the, the relationships that had gone wrong somehow. You could definitely say they're to, silenced. You could say silenced women. Silenced women. It was up to $14.6 million. Then they found $5 million more of unauthorized payments that were not recorded. And we thought, shit, he's up to almost $20 million. Poor Laurinaitis in second place at only $1.5 million. And we mentioned Bruce just barely got on the board. <laughs> Bruce Pritchard with $297.50. Now we find out that potentially the last $5 million may have been payments to Donald Trump's fake charity foundation that has been since shut down in 2018 when they found out that he was using the money for his own personal gratification. And I believe that that was also what caused the Trump family to actually be legally barred from being involved in a charity in the state of New York. Is that correct? That sounds right, yeah. So... My question now is, I understand the hush money payments to the illegal paralegal or talent that he had coerced into playing footsie with him or these other shady, nefarious, under-the-table activities with these women, why those payments could not be recorded. I still don't understand why he couldn't have just written him a check out of his own personal bank account, and he might not be in a lot of this shit right now. But. Uh, you understand why you'd want to keep that on the kayfabe side. Why did they give $5 million to Donald Trump's fake charity and not report it when Donald Trump appeared at WrestleMania? And it was reported at the time that uh, he was going to get an, a, a, either an appearance fee or his foundation would. And then there was the... The angle that uh, he did where they had to abort that thing when it was alleged that he had bought the WWF and the stock price did went tumbling or whatever the case. But he's appeared for them a couple of times legitimately on camera. Why couldn't they record these expenses? Was it because it was a crooked charity? And the only reason Vince was giving that money was under the table so Trump could claim it or Trump could use it personally, but it would be a charitable don't. I don't understand. Why would you not record that? I don't quite understand either. If Vince is paying Trump for the WrestleMania appearance, and again, this is before Trump was in politics, if he's paying him for the WrestleMania appearance in a funky manner that they have to rectify over 10 years later in their books, and all these women were paid, you mean that's it? There's no other examples of him misappropriating company shareholder money 
for his own personal things? That's what we have to find out. Remember when they first started up the XFL, Alpha Entertainment, and they claimed the WWE's going to have nothing to do with this, and then they used the WWE's production company, yeah. a production <laughs> facility, to produce all their stuff. Who paid for that? So, I mean, there's a lot of questions, I think, now that there's two separate things, one involving hush money payments to women, and one involving, again, like you said, this is a very public thing. It was the most bought WrestleMania ever, I believe. I mean, everyone knew Trump was there. It was a big deal. So why there would be some funkiness with those payments, I don't understand. Well, but also, obviously, the whole reason was Vince wanted to get in good with Trump, not only when he was just another fellow billionaire, but then obviously, uh, since then, with you know the whole connection with Linda and when well, Trump... They go, go back. Ahead. They go back. You got to remember. Well, yeah, they go back 30 years. WrestleMania 3 was the biggest thing ever. The Silver Dome, whatever the real attendance was, 93,173. And then Trump bought the rights for WrestleMania 4 and then again for 5 to be in Atlantic City. They pretended Boardwalk Hall was part of the Trump Plaza facility <laughs> with all the banners, but it wasn't. It was down the street from Trump Plaza. But he did that. And then to show you what kind of friend Vince was to him. WrestleMania 7, one of the celebrities was Marla Maples. Now, what is she a celebrity for? For being the mistress of Donald Trump who broke yeah. up his marriage. So she was one of the celebrities and Trump was there at WrestleMania 7. So him and Vince go back a long way. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Vince was trying to figure out a way to give Donald Trump, his buddy, uh, money in such a way that Donald Trump wanted it, where he wouldn't have to pay tax on it, or it was some kind of fucking scam for the scam charity, or whatever the case. And so that, you know, you can understand that, but it had to be in some fashion where it wouldn't pass muster as an official payment if they put it on their books of a publicly traded company. But that, But obviously, yeah, they've been thick as thieves forever, and that's why... Linda was involved, and and yeah, I Linda luckily, has to answer for that one too. Well, I luckily never had to be around Vince McMahon after Donald Trump got in politics or even actually on television. Uh, so I never had to talk to him about it or about him or about it, the pig faced piece of shit. But you know, I know Vince McMahon. I don't care if Charles Manson, Howie the mailroom guy, or you know, Pete Best, the fifth Beatle, had a chance of being the president of the United States. Vince is always going to want to stay on that guy's good side. So, but, but uh, so now Trump cost Vince even more than any individual. Well, no, I guess there was a $7.5 million payoff for one of the women. Yeah, by the way, I, so, I can't explain why I thought about this the other day, but all these Vince payments, for anyone who thinks Michael Jackson was innocent, he paid that boy $20 million in like 1993. $20 million. <laughs> Vince was paying all these millions years later. So I, I don't know why I thought about that the other day, but I was thinking about hush money payments and I thought about Michael Jackson. But now when did, when did they say that, that Vince paid Michael Jackson $20 million? No, Vince wishes he could have paid Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson wanted nothing to do with WWE. Well, then why did Vince pay him $20 million? Well, no, Michael Jackson paid a young boy $20 million. His family. Oh. Oh, I thought, well, there's too many pronouns in there, pal. Oh, I, I thought Vince paid Michael Jackson. I was going to, holy mackerel, that would just beat it. That'll be the real test if Vince is gone. You know, yes, just everybody's he, him, and her. <laughs> That's right.
He, him, and her, or and, and it, and she, and all those other pronouns. What are pronouns? Who are pronouns? Let me clarify this. <laughs> you know, here's something you won't have to spend a, t- a ton of money on, Luther Hags. Here's something that nobody has to spend a ton of money on, and that's the parts that you will get at rockauto.com. Have you heard about this, Brian? Have you read about this? I've heard about it. I've read about it. Yes. They've got great prices. Let's say that you need a curved fallopian rod for a 66 Impala. You can't just go down the street to Bob's Discount Auto Parts and get something like that. It's a specialty part. There were only 16 of those 66 Impalas made with the curved fallopian rods. All the rest of them are straight. But I'll guarantee you, if you go to rockauto.com, they're going to have that fallopian rod in all kinds of different positions and shapes. And even colors. Would you like a blue fallopian rod? A green one? A red one? It's up to you. Because with the ever-increasing number of makes and models of cars, it's impossible for these traditional chain storefronts to stock all the auto parts that you might need for your car, truck, or, or vehicle. And I'll tell you what, these storefronts, for one thing, they need to build the whole store. When it's just a front and then you walk through the door and you're already in the backyard and you <laughs> no, find out no, it's just no, a no. movie set. Well, it's a movie set is what they do. They set these movie sets up where it's just the front of the building. And when you walk through, you find out they've taken you. You believed you were going into an auto parts store. Instead, you're already in the backyard. And then you can't figure out how to get back around front. So therefore, don't go to the chain storefronts, folks. <laughs> go to a place that has room in it and is has four walls but you won't have to do that with rockauto.com because they are a virtual storefront they don't have a front a side a back they they exist only in our imagination and across the the famous mountain known as shangri-la they are very real and they have very real auto parts that they will very happily sell for reasonable prices to our very real listeners they actually, the, the main location of rockauto.com is out in the Pacific in, a, uh, in an island called Paradise Island. And whenever you order one of the auto parts from rockauto.com's fine website, where you can easily navigate and see all the parts available, but whenever you order one, they put it in one of their invisible planes, and they just fly it right to your house, and they drop it right into your backyard. Please bring small pets and or children in on the day that you expect your delivery because there has been some issue, especially on the heavier parts, the crankshafts and the the engine. You drop an engine from a couple thousand feet on a fucking poodle. There will be nothing dropped anywhere near anybody. Nothing will be dropped except dropped off at your doorstep or if you notate, maybe your garage but dropped off in a reasonable, normal manner, the way people yeah. normally drop off mail or parcels, not via helicopter or plane or whatever it is you're envisioning over here. Well, just keep your kids and pets off the doorstep and, the, and out of the garage also, just in case. But, uh, but anyway, when, and when the parts are delivered by this incredible service that they give you, they're 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 guaranteed and they're always going to work or else why you get your money back obviously but they're not going to change prices on you either a lot of people do that the bait and switch on the price and no these are the lowest prices possible every single day and rockauto.com doesn't 
require a membership or an account login? Well, just any old person can wander in there. Now, you got to watch out. While you're in the rockauto.com, what do they call it? The, uh, the, the cloud on the internet there. You got to watch out because anybody can come in. It's for any, they don't call anybody out. So you got to watch out to your left and your right in case some unsavory no. person gets on the website at the same time. No, you do not but, have to watch out for anything. You could safely surf the web when you go to rockauto.com and safely purchase what you need. You do not need yes. to watch out. Well, because everybody can, can get in and go to this website. That doesn't mean they're going to attack you. They, they're going to buy auto parts just like you are. Well, then hurry up before they get you the one you want, folks. Go to rockauto.com right and write in the how did you hear about us box. They've got a box there. It says, how did you hear about us? Write JCE in that. That's a code that will let them know to take care of you people even better than the normal hoi polloi that uh, propagates this site. Anyway. Again, the best of all, prices are always reliably low. Why spend up to twice as much? You need money for food and mortgage and frivolous things like that. Why would you want to spend 100% more for the exact same auto part at one of these brick-and-mortar chain stores? I think not. RockAuto.com, amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts that your little old car will ever need in its whole pee-picking life, rockauto.com. All righty, let's go to a little of the current retro WWE. The, the A&E shows are more entertaining than anything on Fox and USA. And uh, you want to do Rivals first? It was shorter. Let's get that out of the way, even Short though it came second. Short is good. <laughs> No, actually, it had more Foley in it and uh, less of DX than biography. You know, I saw this program and I, the thought I came away from it is that Mick Foley's curse is making marks that want to be deathmatch wrestlers and use thumbtacks prevalent because their understanding of his talent was so superficial that that's all they took away from him. They didn't understand the, the verbal ability, the intelligence that he's got, the likability of his personality, no matter what he does, the psychology that he used, the effort that he put into thinking of what he was going to do and say, and all these wannabe fucking knuckleheads took away from it was, here's a guy who looks like shit like me, so if if I hit people over the head or get hit over the head or whatever with large, blunt, sharp objects, I can be a star too. And they completely were not able to grasp, were not on a high enough plane to understand that the only guy that was going to do all that and still be that level of star is the guy that people genuinely like and genuinely has talent but that's mixed curse because all that it, it would be like if you if all you got from sinatra was yeah he was tied up with the mob just the 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 most unsavory part of any great artist's life or personality or existence or whatever that's all you take away from it but that was my, unfortunately, the sad takeaway from seeing this show. 
And at the same time, it shows how Triple H, as the and they even admitted it, the snob, the the goofy gimmick that they kind of made him when they got him from WCW, and he was a blue blood with you know Regal. They took the blue blood thing and made him a rich snob from Greenwich, Connecticut, because it was a rib on Vince. Well, no, in WCW he was French. Was he? Fr- oh yeah, Jean Paul Levesque. Yeah. Uh, but well, same deal. The fucking tailcoat and the curtsy and the whole nine yards. And and Sean beat around the bush. Michael's saying that it was his foot in the door gimmick. But that's what it was, and that's the point I was trying to make. Even the people doing it and their friends did not like that gimmick. So when I made mention on one of the shows here a couple months ago, when old Shitstain was saying, "Well, yeah, he didn't think Triple H would ever draw a dime." I said, no, the fucking guy doing the curtsy is not going to draw a dime. And apparently everybody involved in it agreed with me. But yeah, you, can, can I just say something real quick? Because someone pointed this out and I thought it was interesting. Uh, just your brief thing the other day about the 1997 booking ideas of Russo. He had ideas for JBL, how to repackage him, how to use him, make him more like the real JBL. Wasn't his story last year that he hated JBL? That's why he created the Brawl for All? Well, you, I don't know whether he said he hated him as a person, but he said Bradshaw was always bragging in the locker room about how tough he was. What he was always doing was fucking riding and ribbing somebody because he's a loud Texan and shit stain had never been in a locker room of any type before and didn't understand the interplay and assumed that Bradshaw really was telling this guy he was going to knock him out or that guy or the other goddamn thing. And well, that's at least the story that he came up with after the fact to one of, what was that, explanation number six or seven or eight for why he wanted guys to fucking shoot on live television with gloves on. But yeah, no, he, it depends on what the fucking time period is and what he can say that he looks the best on. Whereas my shit's pretty consistent. Yeah. It just in some eras people don't like it, and in some eras they do. But in I, this program, they acted like that Mick and Triple H got each other over, and obviously, and Triple H, you saw he was working his ass off in this, and that's one thing and that has come out, and the point's been made, especially after we get through the, the biography. Triple H was the only one of these fucking guys that really didn't have any bad habits and was professional enough to do what he needed to do in any situation, even if he was getting punished for the curtain call. But Mick was already more established at the time that they started this program than Triple H was. And of course that sit down with Jim Ross, and we've talked about this on Mick's biography, but it's been a while. But, um, the sit down with Jim Ross is not just what sold the fans on mankind, Mick Foley, but it's what sold Vince. He was sitting watching. And when he saw that, that's when he finally got Cactus Jack and decided to, to go with him. I, I, I always call him Cactus because I knew him that as that first, but, but anyway, they, they made the point in this program. I thought very well that, the fans got to love Cactus because they loved the person. And nobody's ever 
really successfully copied or imitated or even done anything in the same vein as his promos and his psychology and his likability and realness. Like I said, a lot of people just copy the stunts, but then you look back, Cactus sold everything. And remember, he was a full-grown man, 275 pounds doing this shit. And now these little, you know, fucking ballerinas will do the same shit and pop right back up, and they weigh 160. So there was more of an element of damage and realness, and in some cases, as Mick will tell you, because there was. But anyway, they got into a King of the Ring 97, Triple H and Mankind, and Triple H finally gets the win, the King of the Ring, that he was supposed to get in 96 when he got punished for the curtain call, and now they get China. And the thing that came up to me, I don't know, I didn't really see at the time that he was planning this, but I see now he was. Triple H has always been, you could say, ambitious, or you could say a locker room social climber, but he's always been smart about what do I need, what can set me apart. I need to get out of this goofy snob gimmick from Greenwich. I need the girl bodyguard with me because that's great dressing for the way I look. I need, you know, this and that. He would change things, and he had the political pull or was getting it to start getting those things done. And that I love the dude love segment again, because it was, I've told you this story. Have I not? When cactus came to me and said, corny, what do I do about dude love? Yeah. I thought of it actually, as soon as they played the clip of him saying, have mercy. Woo. Have mercy, baby. For the newer listeners. And I'm not this Mick Foley made up dude love as a teenager. That was his wrestling gimmick to play wrestling with his friends and the video of him doing the splash off the roof of the house onto the mattress that was dude love but the problem was that when they actually wanted cactus to become dude love there really wasn't a dude love he had done a couple of interviews on on the camera with his friends doing that thing and maybe he'd had a backyard match or two as dude love but he didn't who is dude love who what what are his promos what does he do and as well the whole idea that Mick had of dude love as a teenager was that that was a kind of a stereotypical cocky pretty boy wrestler like Shawn Michaels you know he kind of wanted to be Shawn the sexy boy the boy toy but with dude dude love just dripped you know, hippie 70s type of thing. And he already had some tie-dye. And I said, Cactus, just do the Valiant Brothers. Do Handsome Jimmy Bay. Woo, Missy! Do, and, you know, all that old superstar Billy Graham kind of shit. That's the era you're, you're looking at with the tie-dye, the dude love, the wrestling gimmicks. You know, and just, I gave him some lines that the Valiant Brothers did, or that Graham had done, or, you know, who brother, dude loves like cheap toilet paper. He don't take crap off nobody. It's corny. That's the whole idea. And then he got the girl dancers because he's a sex symbol. And one of them was Colette on one of the, uh, his wife on one of the raw programs. And Vince got into this to the point where he was back there personally. He envisioned the 
the intro of Dude Love, and he produced it personally back in the hallway. Remember, it was just mixed feet, his boots. And he's just walking, but he's walking with that little bounce. And there's, as Vince would say, the click track. And he's coming out to the... And you don't know what Dude Love looks like, but that's the bumper to the break. Vince loved that shit. So that was... And then, you know, I've mentioned before that Cactus came to me after a while. He said he hated Dude Love because Dude Love wasn't taking bumps and Dude Love wasn't getting thrown off top of the cage. Dude Love was dancing with, you know, the the girls in the bikinis and with the fans and doing the groovy shit. And he said, am I shorting people? They, you know, they want to see me do this and that and the other thing. I said, no, they're loving this because this is you too and you're not killing yourself. Because they had been, the fans had actually been getting queasy about the bumps he was taking and what he was doing himself because they liked him. And that's almost impossible to obtain in wrestling where they actually genuinely like you anymore. I said, no, you're not shortchanging them. You're making them happy in a different way and you're saving some of your career. But anyway, so this program kind of uh, uh, goes concurrently with Cactus morphing into the three faces of Foley. And then finally, Cactus Jack does the debut against Triple H in Madison Square Garden that we referred to a little while ago. And Kevin Dunn said, nobody's going to know him in New York in Madison Square Garden. And the place fucking pops. And he tore the house down. And then by the time he won the title from, or in uh, January of what, 99, he was as over as anybody in the company but Rock or Austin, but in a different way. Rock was a, a movie star, even though he wasn't really in the movies yet. And Austin was the biggest star in the business because he was the kick-ass fucking rattlesnake. They didn't like either one of those guys as much as they liked Mick Foley, the fans, they were heroes. They looked up to him. They respected him. But Mick had the fucking personal love of the people. And that, I think, is what Triple H saw as, boy, I can really get some heat fucking this guy around. And he stepped up the game by becoming the game and the blah, blah, blah. And that... uh Again, that metamorphosis picked him up a little bit more in seriousness to where now the people have forgotten about the curtsy and the snob and the, you know, what was it, harpsichord music they gave him as Hunter Hearst Helmsley at first? I believe so. First time I saw Sable, she was uh, walking Hunter Hearst Helmsley to the ring. Yes, because they, God damn it, remember that, that they thought the way to get her over and get Mero over was to have her be the abused. Again, they always wanted the heels to abuse the women. They wanted her to be the girl that was escorting Hunter Hearst Helmsley to the ring, and then Marrow, after a couple weeks, would save her from his, you know, rude treatment. And somehow that would get both these amateurs over, and it didn't. Both amateurs, I'm talking about Marrow and Sable now. Anyway... So Triple H wins the title from Mankind, and then Cactus Jack comes back to get even. 
in a street fight. And I'm glad they put it in. Vince McMahon said no thumbtacks, and they did them anyway. Because I've always said, if, if I can't imagine the face on Vince McMahon. If, if anybody in my presence had ever at that point in time come up to him and said, so we're going to take a bag of about 5,000 thumbtacks and dump it out in the ring and take bumps in it. So that's one good thing that Vince said, but they did it anyway. And they inspired a lot of indie superstars with that match because it was a stunt show. And, you know, every great man has had a negative effect on something. And unfortunately, Mick's effect upon the simple-minded was, was his. And then they do the career on the line match because Mick, imagine this, in his early 30s, is thinking, well, I should probably retire because my body is fucking broken. And they do a Hell in a Cell and Triple H win. So what a program. Did, did, I, did Cactus ever beat the fucking guy? No, that was the frustrating thing as a wrestling fan at the time. Again, we talked about it with, I guess, DX. But they were, we didn't talk about it. We talked about it with something else. They were jamming Triple H down our throat for several years, well past where anyone else who was a wrestling fan wanted to see him on the show, but they were not going to stop. And although the Triple H you feuded with Mick Foley in 99 was different than the one in 97, who was still getting shoved down everyone's throat, it was the same thing. And we can all look back now, and Triple H was a good wrestler. Bruce Pritchard had the most honest comment. He said, whatever you say about this guy, he went out there and worked as hard as he could. Every yeah. time he got hurt, he finished a match. Every time. I mean, you can't say anything bad about the work ethic. It's just about, you know, this was right before the period of Raw where Triple H would begin every show with a 20-minute monologue, just tearing yeah. down the rest of the roster. It was the beginning of bad things to come. I thought, and you brought up that last match, the, uh, I guess it was a Hell in a Cell match. I had not watched that in many, many years. I actually thought watching it was a little sad. It was almost like trying to recreate Mick Foley's greatest hits just a few years later in that match. Yeah. And when he took the fall through the cage into what was clearly a crash pad, it wasn't like he fell in and sometimes it looks like broken planks or something. It looked as safe as possible. It would have been something that got a bigger pop if they hadn't seen the real thing from him a few years earlier. Well, and, and also, I hadn't thought of this. I saw that all those years ago. It's been 23 years, and I hadn't seen it since then, and I'd forgotten. I don't know, but that he dodged a bullet on the second bump through the top of the Hell in a Cell to the gimmicked ring may have been more dangerous than the one that he took two years earlier or whatever that was unplanned that the ring wasn't gimmicked because did you see him hit the back of his head when Triple H backdropped him so he could land too many pronouns pal backdropped Cactus so that he could land on the gimmicked section of cage the back of Cactus's head going over on the backdrop hit one of those support beams on the cage and it almost over-rotated him where he was going feet first through that goddamn thing instead of ready to take a flat back bump. He could have, with that distance to drop, if he had rotated any farther over, that could have been a, he could have missed the spot. It could have been fucked up. Or he could have been knocked out by getting hit in the back of the head with a fucking steel beam 
20 feet in the air before he landed. So that one, because he tried to get back dropped over it, but the back of his head hit that thing and he bounced off of it. And even in that match, he took a bump off the side of the cage into or onto one of the tables. And again, you just saw a couple of years earlier, the match with him and the Undertaker. So yeah, it, like the I hip said, toss off the top from twice as high. It, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's what I told him after that match, after the cell match with The Undertaker. I said, Mick, you can't ever top this, and please don't fucking try. Because that was the limit of human endurance right there. Weird question for you, but it's obviously something we see in modern times, and you could say maybe you saw it with Mick Foley. I mean, I, maybe not even maybe. You saw it with Mick Foley. The idea of wrestlers trying to constantly top themselves, is that a new sensation, a new thing in wrestling? The idea you constantly have to go out there and do something so much more than what you did before? Yes. Well, and and for two reasons, one valid and one stupid. The valid, the stupid reason that everybody knows is because guys in the days when, when you worked or didn't work, depending on whether you made money or not, you didn't want to get hurt. You didn't want to hurt anybody else. You wanted to protect the credibility of the business and not do obviously phony shit just because you came up with an idea that would be a cool spot. And the idea that someone, whether it be your opponent or your booker or your promoter, if you started doing too much top this shit stuff, would calm you down and say, no, <laughs> the Guy working with you doesn't want to go along with it, or it's not your place on the card, or you're going to be out of here in three months, but we still got a business to run, or something like that. That was a so the the stupid thing is is guys trying to top themselves now because you get to the limit of human endurance and or of things you can do without showing obvious cooperation, and once you pass that, you're just risking yourself unnecessarily for nothing. But the valid reason was because they didn't need to. In in the territory days, you had some place to go. So the fans weren't going to see, unless you were the top guy in the territory and bulletproof, Jerry Lawler in Memphis, Dusty in Florida for quite some time, or Eddie Graham before him, or Bruno in the Northeast, or Ghani in the Midwest, we could go on and on. You were cycling in and out from territories, so you weren't having to top yourself from a match you had four years ago, and they're still seeing you, so you got to take a bigger fucking bump. And it was more about who won the match, did the hero get even with the villain, is the championship safe for democracy in the hands of our hero? Simple stuff that everybody could relate to, not who can take the biggest bump. And the most dangerous thing, I'll say this and then I'll quit, the most dangerous thing done in those days was not in the match that you had, but the angle to lead up to the match. The angle is where you did something that was conceivably dangerous or deadly or whatever, because that was the shocking incident that caused the first match in this rivalry to come about. And that was what you wanted to register with the fans the most. So, you know, the Mongolian stomper didn't fucking steal the sledgehammer and knock the b concrete block off Joe LaDuke's head and hit him in the head with the sledgehammer in a match. 
He did it in the angle on television to make people want to see the match. And they had the match as soon as LeDuc got out of the hospital. Where he went for real because Stomper really hit him over the head with the sledgehammer. But that's what I'm saying is that you did something dangerous or shocking or uh, potentially injurious to get the people interested in seeing the guys fight. And once that they were already interested in seeing them fight, then you could do, as long as you were a top main event guy, you could do your fucking match with the other guy and the people were into it. You didn't just book a cold match and then have them do 18 million fucking bumps through furniture and expect that to increase the house because then the only ones that you're promoting to with all of that are the ones that already bought a ticket to see a cold match. Put it on TV where everybody can see it and you got the widest chance of drawing the most people. So that was two things. Nobody topped everybody in the old days because they didn't have to for those reasons and they were too smart to try to do that because then it would just make their job if guys were doing that in territories, it would make their job harder because they'd have to do more and more. And it would make the booker's job harder because these two yahoos have just goddamn killed three stipulations by doing all this wild shit and getting up and continuing on. So we can't fucking pile drive the guy once and carry him out in an ambulance because this guy just got pile drive twice and got back up. Or we can't do the other thing because this guy just killed it. So there was restraint in the midst of all the chaos and violence. All right, and that was WWE Rivals. It was? Oh, yeah, it was. That's where we were. All right. <laughs> you want to talk about the biography? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The biography of DX, I wasn't... Sure, how I'd like the concept of a biography on a group instead of an individual. They've been doing such good uh, biographies lately on the one person where they trace their, you know, even us experts don't know everything about this guy's childhood, early life, how they got in wrestling, whatever. And I thought, well, how are they going to have time to do all of this, you know, with this amount of people? They did it on a more abridged basis, but, you know, still they got it in, but I had mixed feelings about this show too because I really, the whole DX thing, when it was happening and I was having to be there and actually put up with it, I hated it. The childishness, the suck it, the crotch chop, and the ass showing. I never understood why pe people said in some of the talking heads in this, well, it was badass and it was, they were cool. I'd, only if you were in sixth grade. I never understood what was cool and bad. Cool and badass to me was Stone Cold Steve Austin, was The Undertaker, was The Rock's fucking incredible ego and glibness on the microphone. Or, you know, what, cool nature boy Ric Flair with the styling and profiling, but grabbing your dick, telling everybody to suck it, pulling your tights down. I never... You know, and making fun of, in a lot of cases, the wrestling business. I never got that part. However, I did remember also that I kind of did like the second version of DX better than the first because it had Road Dogg and Billy Gunn in it and no Shawn Michaels. 
So possibly part of my feeling is personal also because Michaels was the instigator of all of this. But that's one of the things, though. They almost pretend like DX is just one big thing now, but it was Michaels with Hunter and China, and then it was everything else. It wasn't like there was a big DX with everyone. And as we talked about recently, Michaels had go-away heat from the fans, whether people want to realize it or recognize it or talk about it now or not. And DX didn't really pick up steam as a thing until Sean Waltman came back. Yeah, because that was one of the, at the time, one of the more shocking reverse comebacks. Um, it, it had been all all one way for a while there with people, former WWF people going to WCW. But then, and of course, as Sean admitted, he got fired and in WCW and they got the chance to bring him back. And that made a splash because the... Monday Night Ward really started heating up a bit, and suddenly we, you know, we got one back. So that was that was a thing that shocked people. And then, let's face it, Road Dog and Billy, neither one of them was Michaels in the ring, but they had more fresh, likable personalities to that same pissy fucking look on Michaels's face, and it started getting over with people. And and Road Dog especially could talk his ass off because he's an Armstrong and he had a line of fucking bullshit. Again, one of the important things that has to be said when you're talking about why this got over, why grown men acting like children crotching, uh, crotching their chops. Crotching their chops. Chopping their crotches got over. You know, you do have to also say it was the time. It, you know, Russo worked in that moment with all of his ideas throwing him at Vince because it was the time of that kind of crash TV and Jerry Springer and fucking Limp Biscuit was a big band right after this. Like, it was the time of all this crap. It worked then. It may not have worked. It certainly wouldn't have worked at any time before then. It may not have worked the same way afterwards. It was the right time for that, but DX was not a main event act at that time. Yeah, well, and they made that point in this program that it was the that period of the 90s where everybody would suddenly just lost their fucking minds and just wanted to, you know, drool all over everything. But at the same time, and also, who is this David Shoemaker? And why is he supposed to be an expert? And why does he try to, to sound like one when he obviously is, he knows a lot of good words, but has he ever actually been involved in the wrestling business anywhere ever, ever? He's apparently been on some podcast and he's aligned with Ben Simmons, who's the guy who has done good work for ESPN and also did that Andre the Giant documentary with a lot of historically inaccurate information, including featuring David Shoemaker. (laughs) I just find it amazing because I know a little bit about wrestling and I happen to be okay at talking about it. But to know nothing about wrestling and then decide I need to talk to the world about it, that's amazing. I don't know how you do that. He confidently says shit that's inaccurate. In a brilliant fashion. Yeah. I, have to yeah, I know he, he knows a lot of good words and he is absolutely confident that all the fucking prepared dreck <laughs> that he is delivering is. Um, and, you know, and he said, well, wrestling was boring and that. Well, no, the WWF was boring. Wrestling wasn't boring. The WWF was boring at that period of time and wrestling didn't need to change. The WWF did. But the. The change I thought was necessary was the change to Austin Rock, Taker, Foley, even a Triple H game, but not jacking off figuratively and literally. So um, Triple H got the first childhood bio, fascinated with wrestling, looked very weird as a teenage bodybuilder, not at all like 
what he would uh, morph into. He went from Killer Kowalski school to <laughs> the WCW run was a mention where they said, well, we saw you at a tryout. He'd already signed with WCW. We said, call us when your contract's up. And then we skip ahead to he's there. And Sean's childhood bio, and he was a childhood fan, wanted to be a wrestler from the time he was a kid. And of course, they this was fast forward in terms of you know, childhood biographies. So they jumped him into the wrestling business pretty quick. Very little mention of, of Jose at all, Jose Lothario. Then suddenly he's in the Rockers and they're partying every night. And then he splits from Marty and becomes the heartbreak kid. And that was covered very, fairly succinctly, but they never mentioned Sherry Martell's name. She was on a lot of the video with Sean. That was another, like with Triple H in China, what, five, six, seven years later, Sean, he had Sherry, who was so animated, had such personality, it, it added to his presentation. It made the picture. The Undertaker admits that he didn't like Shawn Michaels, but he was a great worker. That's probably the most complimentary thing I've ever heard Undertaker say about Shawn on, in public. And the clique then gets formed where Shoemaker, again, says the clique thought wrestling in the 90s was lame. Well, they probably did, because I think you're fucking lame. Boot black or cobble <laughs> pot or whatever your fucking name is. <laughs> but they did make fun of Vince's 1990s occupation fetish with the plumber and the IRS guy and the fucking et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Waltman had the best line. How come these people need a second occupation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wrestling's doing, because wrestling was doing bad at the time, partially because of all these guys with occupations. And yes, they're making the point, wrestling should have been made more adult. Yes, it should have. It should have been made more adult. Wrestling was always more adult than that foolishness, that Vince cartoon land. But don't make it more adult by making it more childish. Anyway, they showed the curtain call video and actually talked to the guy who shot it. Uh, Brian, I, you weren't there, were you? No, I did not go to that show. That was you would you would have been a well you would have been a young teenager, but I would have been a teenager who was traveling all over the Northeast going to shows, and I decided not to go to that one. Yeah. But they said the garden went ballistic. The garden didn't go ballistic. The garden cheered the individual people coming out and or reacted to, in the case of the heels, because they were stars coming out and what's going on. But then they sat there. I watched it from the fucking back, standing next to fucking Jerry Briscoe. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't know why this was going on, even though a lot of people in New York were smart to the business. It was a puzzlement to them as to why that these enemies on the program were hugging and kissing and doing whatever the fuck they were doing. And that's why all the agents got hot. That's why Jerry Briscoe threw his fucking briefcase bag down the hall and while we all just turned around and discussed and wanted to leave the building as quick as possible because we knew Vince wasn't going to fire him and that's what everybody wanted 
and because they shit on his dining room table in Madison Square Garden. But the crowd didn't go ballistic. They were confused. And at least they had Ric Flair saying, hey, in the 70s, all four of those guys would come back and got shit beat at them. And that's what everybody wanted to do, but they didn't want to get fired, and they knew Vince probably would because Sean was involved. So Sean said they weren't shitting on the business. They were expressing their friendship. And at that point, I wrote, is this where the Young Bucks get their brand of drivel? It's not exposing the business as long as you're expressing your friendship. So anyway, Triple H at that point had to start over. Hall and Nash were gone. Sean was the champion. Vince wasn't going to fucking discipline him or he'd have done it already after any one of innumerable incidents. So they penalized Helmsley. He had to apologize to the locker room, which he should have. And later on, we found out he didn't mean it. And they beat him like a drum until finally he got another chance and got China. And the, here's a quote. The emergence of China was something no one had ever seen. Why did they have to lay her on so thick? What's your problem with I'm, that? What do you mean? They have, like, she was revolutionary. It was Mildred Burke and women's wrestling or whatever. Well, we had never had a big roided up girl like that appear on TV for wrestling. Okay. And with the package, I'm not denying that China worked with the group as the package. She wasn't a good wrestler. She wasn't a good promo. She looked very impressive. And they, when they had her in the group, you know, it 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 it, it was a great picture. Triple H in China or the group in China, Sherry and Shawn Michaels, et cetera, et cetera. But every single documentary now or every retrospective has to give you the impression that she was one of the most earth-shaking attractions in the history of professional wrestling. And that's not the case. Nobody ever bought a ticket to see China just on her own. Well, I say no, if somebody's bought a ticket to see everything, but you know what I'm saying. As part of the group, fine. But is it because of the, they feel like they'll get points if they talk about the women's empowerment movement and how everybody got to see a strong woman? Is that why they're glorifying? Because let's not forget, they mentioned this later on in this program. As soon as they pushed this girl for two years from scratch, from nothing, from independent shows to on the biggest platform and television program in the business and in with the top group, and then have her beat Jeff Jarrett on pay-per-view and put a men's title on her. And then she goes to him and says, I ought to be making the same money as Steve Austin. And they said, how about this? Fucking leave. She had a mental meltdown. She cracked up, believed her own publicity, just like Sable did. And just so I'm just saying they lay it on thick. And the the reason why that China had a three-year career or whatever there was because she believed the laying on of the thickness and thought she should be making Steve Austin money. And then cracked up further and began a different career. But um, but let's be but honest. Anyway. You say she cracked up there and, and her demands may have been excessive. 
She was a big star there, however, the cracking up may also have had to do with the fact that her longtime boyfriend was having an affair with the daughter of the owner of the company. Yes, well, and that's another reason why you shouldn't have gone in and said, <laughs> I need Steve Austin money, when you already know that your ex-boyfriend is messing around with the owner's daughter. That's probably not the thing. And by the way, you need to pay me as much as the biggest star ever in wrestling. Continuing on. Sean lost his smile. And then, of course, here comes um, the cobbler to say for the survival of the company, DX was a necessary irritant. For the survival of... For the survival... Now DX saved the company. Hot group... Main event stars did not save the WWF. And again, to my earlier point, and I know you can't answer this right now, if you look at 1997, look at the ratings, because that's really the best way to equate this. I guess you can look at some of the buy rates, but really it's the ratings. If you took Shawn Michaels, which is DX at that point, out of the equation, I don't know if it hurt WWE in terms of popularity or views. It may have hurt them in terms of stars for matches, but I don't think... Losing Shawn Michaels earlier, a year earlier than they did, would have hurt the company. Well, and Brett uh, on this program was the only one really being honest about the way a lot of the people in the locker room felt. <laughs> you know, like these fucking guys and their degeneracy and etc. But they were a, a reflection of 90s culture. So then they get to WrestleMania 98 with Tyson and uh, Austin and, and Sean dropping the belt and they claim it. Sean was self-medicating due to his bad back. He'd been self-medicating that bad back for three years before he got it. And there was, they mentioned there was drama as to whether he was going to be there or whatever, but it's all about this back injury. He was doing all kinds of shit. Remember he stayed at another hotel. He came into town later. He was trying to tell Vince that, he probably wasn't going to drop the belt. He wasn't going to show up when he got to the building later than he was supposed to. He had to have a separate locker room. They put security outside it because he demanded it. He'd lost his fucking mind and he was pilled to the gills. But he got in there and dropped the fucking thing the right way. And honestly, that's probably the catalyst for the, that's the, the best thing that Shawn Michaels ever did, when you look at it in hindsight, to boost the WWF's business was drop the belt and go home. He made Steve Austin there, and then Austin carried the ball and took him to be in a, pub a publicly traded company, whereas Shawn's run at the top was refusing to do angles, refusing to do finishes, refusing to show up, showing up in no condition to perform, and lackluster ratings and buy rates. Yeah, you had Austin, you had The Rock who was emerging, we talked about Mick Foley earlier, The Undertaker reinvented himself, and we had a brand new star with Kane show up. And there you go, so Sean's out, and here comes X-Pac, and we talked about that. And then the same night, Billy Gunn and Road Dogg joined, and that was another rib, because... The rockabilly gimmick was rotten, and we talked a little bit about, when we talked about Shitstain's ideas for talent, fire honky-tonk man, in 1997, he's not going to cut it. Well, no, not what they were having him do, he wasn't. It was rotten, but when Billy became a single, they decided to put him with 
Honky because they say, well, Honky can talk. He could be a manager. And the rockabilly thing, it was just silly. It was just silly. But on the other side of the coin, Road Dog Jesse James as a single babyface without Jeff Jarrett and the whole thing that they had built, that didn't make any sense either. So that was true that they were jerking the curtain, wrestling each other in the opening match, and the only person in the company that either one of them could beat was each other. But then they had, again, so much talent and personality that when they got a chance to be somewhat of themselves and do the kind of their own thing and talk a little bit, then that came out. Um, and of course, Road Dog didn't get a lot of biography, some old bullet Bob footage, which was cool. And then brief desert storm mention. And then suddenly he's Jesse James in the WWF. And you know, here's the, I never knew. And none of them had ever mentioned it to me that Ron and Don Harris, the Bruce brothers got Billy talked into training to wrestle. I did not know that. And they had some Bruce brothers, Smoky mountain footage there, but I didn't know that the Bruce brothers, that the Harris boys lived in Tampa when they were starting because they worked Tennessee. I knew they moved Tampa later on, but anyway, I, the, the Harris boys and Brian Lee started in the Tennessee territory and Billy met him in Florida, but nevertheless, did you know that Brian? I don't think I had ever heard that before. I haven't seen too many shoot interviews with Billy Gunn or anything, <laughs> but the first time I ever saw him was on TV in New York on Sports Channel. They had Eddie Mansfield's IWF. It's the first time I ever saw Kevin Kelly, actually, as the commentator. Yeah. And the yeah. Long Riders were, uh, I forget what their names were at the time, but it was him and Bart Gunn, obviously. But anyway, so they, they covered the uh, um, invading the Norfolk scope in the tank fitted jeep because we keep saying tank it had the big tank gun on it but it, they were actually in a jeep i don't think they could get a tank on that short notice and bischoff this time he's the one that claims that he didn't know what was going on he was in the ring doing an interview or he would have told him told him to open the door and they'd had the greatest tv of all time which is exactly what somebody on one of the programs previously i think bruce. it may have been trip it was bruce said that Vince had said, if they'd have come over here, open the door, I'll have the greatest. So I don't think anybody wanted to open the door back there on that particular night. Um, and another segment on the crotch chop. And then they, they started talking at the same time, road dogs getting out of hand, as they said, and Billy Gunn's getting out of hand. Triple H wanted to be the guy. And I think he's seeing, okay, I'm in a group now. And some of the group has bad habits, and I need to, for me, uh, be a single and be the top guy. And the rest of the guys were obviously not happy with that, but he did it anyway. And, and you know, that's, again, the bad thing is, when you go back and do this biography, Road Dog had substance issues. Billy had substance issues. X-Pac had substance issues. China had substance issues. The only one that didn't have substance abuse issues, alcohol, drugs, what have delusions of grandeur on wanting 
more money, whatever the case, was the guy that's now the most powerful person in the pro wrestling business. Funny how that turns out, isn't it? It's interesting when they showed the clip of, and it's easy to forget this, and a lot of us would like to, of Road Dogg and Billy Gunn and TNA as the Voodoo Kin Mafia, VKM. Oh, boy. And they asked, I, I, I assume they asked Triple H about it, and he kind of just shrugged and said, look, they were on drugs. You know, he understands. <laughs> he he kind of gets it. And uh, I was surprised they used that clip, and I guess you kind of had to to tell the full story. Yeah, and and I was there during that time, and God, that was so bad. and. You know, in hindsight, this may have been something I blame Shitstain for that may have been their fault because they were on drugs, so they were approximating his normal booking philosophies. People on drugs generally understand Shitstain's booking, but I blamed him for the VKM, th- the Voodoo Kin Mafia, because that, that sounded like something that was so stupid and so petty. And he loved it. Now, don't get me wrong, when he would read the format and then here comes Voodoo Ken Mafia. He had a big grin on his face. But I guess maybe it was their idea all along. So it was just so bad. And, and that that's one thing I talked to Jeff about and couldn't get changed. Because I said, it just makes them look bad and makes the company look bad. And he said, ah, because he and Road Dog were close. Uh, but uh, the Voodoo Ken Mafia, VKM, Vincent Kennedy McMahon. So they start burying everybody on TV, and and everybody's in a bad place with drugs. There's no re- needs, reason, need or reason to go into detail on everybody's sadness. But everybody went to rehab, and everybody's family came back, except for China. And Road Dog went back to the writing team because Triple H pulled for him. And finally, Sean, of all people, because it, but I loved this anecdote because I didn't know he was there then. And I assume, I don't, unless they're lying, he was. But the night in, what was it, Panama City, Florida, that Vince buys WCW and shows up on Monday Nitro, Sean had walked in that night to visit. No, the Road Dog. Was it Road Dog? I thought it was Sean. No, it was Road Dog. I thought it was Sean. Who got arrested that night? I thought Triple H and Sean had an argument. Maybe it was Triple H and Road Dog. Yeah, Road Dog did get arrested that night. Well, I get whatever the fuck. They still had all kinds of problems. And then finally, Sean straightened up for his kid and called Triple H and came back. And then they, they you know, buttoned the thing up at the end. At Raw 1000, everybody reunites except China. But then China's mother said she talked to her in Japan for the first time in 27 years, and then China comes back to California and dies. And then everybody else gets inducted in the Hall of Fame. But, uh, you know, you think about it, um, a lot of those guys wasted a number of years that they could have still been on top and been productive, and I'm, I'm assuming they all know that. It's not like nobody's pointed it out to them before. But uh, while I think everybody in that group, except for, I'm not going to fucking lie and say I didn't think China was that good, but everybody else in the group had talent, but Triple H is the only one that managed to actually start at the bottom, work his way to the top, never fall from grace, never fucking have issues, never have to go to rehab. 
worked his ass off, politicked his ass off, and is now the most powerful man in the world of wrestling. And everybody else is kind of like the, you know, the the guy that was once in that famed vaudeville group. What do you think of this show? I guess that's a way to look at it. A guy in the fame. It's kind of like Triple H is Teddy Pendergrass. And the rest of the guys are Harold Melvin and the Blue or Notes. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. <laughs> it's kind of more like that. Um, you know, I actually liked a lot of this documentary. I like kind of getting everyone's backstory. It was nice. Um, you know, I think Sean Waltman is just so refreshing whenever you see him talking in any of these things out of anyone in wrestling, especially anyone who's gone through stuff. He's got his head on his shoulders. He's got perspective. I think he's just so good and so real in all of these things it's interesting just watching everything play out now knowing where we are today and watching 25 years ago a young triple h with that head of hair and remembering what i thought of him at the time and then you see him a few years later when he got all bulked up and they never they never bring that up in any of these things just how all of a sudden he got to be double the size as bodybuilder paul Levesque. but it's just really interesting to watch kind of the Kind of seeing Triple H honestly talk about what he wanted out of wrestling at that time. And, you know, even them talking about the breakup of DX because he just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And how it pissed off the other guys. That's kind of like, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep comparing this to other things. When the Go-Go's broke up and, you know, they're like, <laughs> what do you mean? You have no right to fucking leave the band. You know, it's kind of like that. Everyone's relying on that one person. Not relying. I shouldn't say that. But he was certainly the biggest star in DX. I think Jane Weedland could have just jumped right in and picked right up the, the, the baton and carried it. Well, she was the first one to leave. And remember, she was also one of the prime songwriters. So it caused a lot of dissension in the band because not only did she quit the band, but also she was getting more money than just about every other member because she wrote the song. So there was a lot of problems with the band. Yeah, but Belinda Carlisle was a camera hog. Well, speaking of members who got more money than the other members, Triple H, of course, doing very well for himself now. <laughs> But, you know, the other thing is you bring up how when you see the old footage and you're not wrong, everything is so big and everyone just seems like such big stars and the crowds are going crazy. And that's true. But a lot of the stuff, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't hold up, but some of the stuff you see from back then, you kind of cringe a little more than you would have back then. Oh, I cringed back then. If it wasn't something that would have fit on a wrestling program, regardless of the time period, I always cringe because I hate when you constantly make a habit of trying to copy or imitate pop culture, then you just limit yourself because pop culture shit's only hot for a little while. Whereas you make a wrestling star, he's hot forever. I don't like to date I don't mean date in a romantic way going out to a movie. I don't I don't like to date people with gimmicks that are tied to specific pop culture any more than necessary because then you've got a short-term deal going on. Unless it's supposed to be a short-term deal to begin with. Hey, on that topic, let me ask you one quick question before we move on. Magnum TA. Yes. Do you think he successfully got it so that people thought of him without thinking of Magnum PI? Yes, actually I do. Because I was in the middle of a lot of those people thinking that. And, and and also Magnum P.I., it wasn't like that wasn't the first year of that show. The show came out right. a few years before yeah. Magnum T.A. So it wasn't like the thing that was on everybody's tongue. 
And the only reason he took that name was because he had kind of the Tom Selleckish mustache and the rugged good looks. So it was kind of an homage more than a, I mean, you know, Tom Selleck was uh, quite a bit different in personality on the television show than Magnum T.A. portrayed in wrestling, but it was the the mustache and the general beefcake idea of things. Yeah, Tom Selleck smiled every now and then. They were very different. Every once in a while, yes, which was very different from that. <laughs> And Magna, he smiled in the locker room, but it just, he was very serious when he went out. Uh, but anyway, so that was the biography on DX. And again, you know, they had a lot of personal issues. Every And everybody in the group, except for Triple H. And that is a natural segue to another of our fine sponsors that I'm not even going to make fun of in this instance, because some people out there, maybe having the same kind of issues or issues in general that they need help with or somebody to talk to. And I think somebody on that program, and I'm trying to think of who it was, probably X-Pac, I think, Sean Waltman, said you can't, because he is grounded and probably has the best head on his shoulders, said you can't make somebody do something unless they decide they want to, you can't make somebody help themselves unless they're going to do it. You're the person that's got to help yourself, but you can get assistance in facilitating that. If you've made the decision that something's bothering you, something's preventing your happiness or hampering your ability to lead the life you want to lead and you need to talk to somebody about it, that's our friends at BetterHelp. Because BetterHelp is online therapy. They've got video sessions, phone sessions, live chat-only therapy sessions. You don't have to go on camera. You don't have to go anywhere in person. But you can connect with somebody and be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And it's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy. And this is not just for substance abuse or issues of that nature, but for anything that's bothering you and hampering you, they can obviously talk to you about it and or make suggestions of other places to go and things to do. But right now, if you do go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, slash J-C-E, our listeners are going to get 10% off their first month's services. BetterHelp.com, slash J-C-E, 10% off your first month's services to help you take better care of your mind. You know, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And I've already probably wasted half of mine as it is watching wrestling over the years. So I'm keeping careful track of the other half. What about you, Brian? Where's your brain these days? I was going to say, I think I lost half of it this week watching wrestling, let alone half my life. That's true. I, I did feel the IQ points start to slip a little bit. Let's get into the other side of the street with the uh, the folks over at AEW. But before we do that, Brian, what in the wide, wide world of sports is going on in the middle of the road over at the Arcadian Vanguard Network this week? Another fun and action-packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network and information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcast or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. For patrons of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the latest episode is up now. Another edition of Florida Man or Not, a supersized edition, where the boys hear stories and have to guess if the lunatic is from Florida or not. <laughs> hear more at Patreon.com slash Bowdrin and Barry. 
And of course, check out Breaking Cafe with Bowden and Barry wherever you find your favorite podcast. Do you know about this thing where there are so many headlines now? Florida man. Florida yes. man caught naked with crocodile. Florida man in bank upside down. I mean, it's always Florida man. And I wonder why do the Florida women never get the the love there? They should they should be equally as batshit. Have you been to Florida? They are. And of course, I've been to Florida many times. <laughs> and Stan Lane avoided Florida for that very reason. Yeah, that shit. I, I spent a month there one night. Once again, breaking cafe with Bowser to Barry, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Also want to make a little bit of an announcement. And of course, if you follow me on social media, you may have seen this already. And I have a statement I'll read, and then I'll talk to you about it for a moment, if you don't mind, Jim. Wait a minute. A statement you're going to read? Are you going to denounce any knowledge of the something? You're proclaiming your innocence? That's right. I don't know anything about the missing plutonium. Let me start by saying that. But on the, here's the, I put this out the other day, so I'll just read it here. I'm very happy today to announce the launch of a new division of Arcadian Vanguard, as well as the launch of a new podcast, The Wrestling News. In 2020, Arcadian Vanguard purchased the assets of Pro Wrestling Enterprises from Brian Bucantis's Arena Publishing. These assets included The Wrestling News, and the publications merged into it including Wrestling Review, Wrestling Monthly, The Rings Wrestling, and others. Pro Wrestling Enterprises was a company founded by Norman Keitzer, a trailblazer in wrestling media. In 1972, Keitzer began publishing the Wrestling News, initially as a tabloid newspaper, and then as a magazine. Upon the purchase, Arcadia Vanguard began working on a plan to revive the Wrestling News. We are now there. Our goal? with the brand new Wrestling News Wrestling Newscast, is to present you, daily, a serious wrestling newscast covering all the latest news, but minus the opinion and conjecture. We put together a top-notch team for the Wrestling News, including Brian R. Solomon as our news director. You may remember Brian here on the show recently talking about his biography of The Sheik. Brian, who joined Arcadian Vanguard's team full-time in June, will be involved with a variety of our projects in development and will lead our news division. Mike Sempervivi will be the supervising producer of the Wrestling News, as well as an on-air anchor to the newscast. He's been a part of this project since the beginning. Also, Lou Kippelman will be our West Coast and Late Edition producer. You'll also hear him on the air. Stay tuned for future news of team additions and further acquisitions. And subscribe today, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Wrestling News. No clickbait. No paywall, just the wrestling news. You can go to thewrestlingnews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, subscribe today. We're going to be coming at you pretty soon. Now, what? Wait a minute. Let me just let me just clarify this. What you're saying is you're actually going to do a news report, a newscast on wrestling, and actually give the news. In a serious and professional manner, instead of whining and griping about the way that someone is treating your favorite wrestler, that's going to be refreshing. I think that's a way to put it, and that's what we're going to try to do. The idea of being able to wake up in the morning and get ready for your commute and have an actual professional newscast covering everything that happened in wrestling without opinion, without wackiness, without comedy... Just actual wrestling news presented in a professional fashion, with high quality, of course, because it's Arcadian Vanguard, I think it's something I want. So I base everything on what I would want. And 
you know, not to take away from anyone because there's people who do some great work out there, but there's too many people involved with wrestling news overall, not my wrestling news, not the wrestling news, who act like children on social media or get into weird little feuds and just all sorts of weird things happening. And then to get to the news, you have to get through all the other childishness. And I think with the wrestling news, we're trying to present a platform and a forum that is just wrestling news and nothing else. Well, and besides that, you mean to tell me that you're not actually going to take up for your favorite wrestlers and bemoan and, and whine that somebody else is saying bad things about them? You're just going to report what happens. Right. I'll do that on this show, but the staff of the Wrestling News will never do that on the Wrestling News podcast. Because that's the news. And this is the fun part, where we break the news (laughs) and then we turn it back for a refund. That is a way to look at it, yes. And of course, you were a former photographer for the Wrestling News. You were... Am I going to get am I going to get residuals out of this by the way? I'm not sure that's in your contract. I have the contract over here. I shit you do, don't you? But I know you had the role with the magazine you started with Kitzer obviously, but yes. for the wrestling news itself, were you did you have a role for the edition that was East Tennessee? Uh, or uh, not East no, Tennessee, it, but Tennessee, excuse me. In NWA East edition. Yes. See, that was the cool thing is that the way that Norm Kitzer uh, formatted the wrestling news magazine it was like a, I'm just guesstimating a 68-page magazine, but like half of that would be stories about wrestlers from all over the country, but then half of it he could print different pages and uh, assemble the magazine where there was an NWA East edition that they would sell in the arenas in the Tennessee Territory and the Carolinas and maybe Georgia, and there was an a WWWF edition, obviously. There was a an AWA edition. There was an NWA West edition for out Texas and yeah. out in the central states and that way. Stranglehold. There was actually, there was a stranglehold edition <laughs> for the WWA, Dick the Bruiser, in, in uh, Indiana. And that was during, part of that was during the promotional war in Detroit. Hey, did you hear Scott so, Romer's in the hospital? No, what happened to Scott? He had a stroke. Oh, no. Yeah, actually, I just heard about a Travis Hecklegun touching me before the show. How old is he now? I am not certain. I don't have all the details here, but apparently he's recovering, and John Cosper went to visit him, I was told. He's not that much older than me, so I wish him good health, not only because I want to see him get better, but also because if anything bad happens to him, it'll scare me. We can't have that. (laughs) So get well, Scott. (laughs) But Scott Romer was—he was a great photographer for uh, for the magazines, and and in those days he was in Indianapolis and worked for Bruiser. But he's done over the years all kinds of promotions all over the place. But yeah, that was the Wrestling News. It was a cool magazine, and it was it was done that way so that the promoters could sell it in the arenas. It wasn't a newsstand publication, and then that's what I. Uh, when I made the deal with Norm Keitzer for the championship wrestling magazine, the problem was that not a lot of the wrestling news is sold in the Tennessee territory because even though they tried to, uh, you know, cater to Teeny and the, and the territory somewhat and put Dundee or Lawler or some of their stars on the cover, the magazine was not totally about the Memphis wrestlers. So when I started, uh, 
got the idea to do the magazine, I asked if Norm Keitzer would print it for me, and he said, sure, we'll do a little 16-page magazine with just, you know, the Memphis stuff. Well, that ended up selling so much better than the wrestling news that he said, tell you what, I'm losing all of my advertising uh, in the territory because nobody's buying the wrestling news with all the ads that we sell. Everybody's buying your magazine, which you pay us to print. But how about for the same cost, instead of doing the little magazine, we do a, a full size 68 page magazine and we put all our ads in it. Court now it wasn't 68 pages that I did. It was probably 30 sub 48, whatever the fuck. But I got 10 or 12 pages of his ads, but I got 10 or 12 extra pages of content. And it was a bigger page format. So that was the deal we made so he could get his advertising seen in the territory. And I could still do my own magazine, which sold better. Right. And again, even though the wrestling news existed in a world of kayfabe, for its time, it did a great job of covering what was happening all over wrestling. Those magazines were different than the, what we now call the Aptor magazines, the Western publishing magazines. Because, yeah, they, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say there, the, the wrestling news, there was more contributions from local photographers and writers, and they, they didn't exposed the business, but they didn't write the wild, wacky storylines that the After magazines did on the newsstands. They were the devoted fan of the, or the devoted photographer in that territory, and they wrote really straight articles on the wrestlers and their feuds and rivalries that weren't breaking kayfabe, but had more of an element of the actual storyline rather than the stuff that they made up in New York, which was just kind of off the wall. That's right. And just like the original Wrestling News, the Wrestling News podcast, newscast, as we call it, will have correspondence. We'll have different people, different voices on the air. This is going to be a whole new thing, a whole new kick, and we think everyone else will like it because we're real excited about it. And again, thewrestlingnews.com, or look for The Wrestling News, Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, we have a lot of big plans in store for everyone, so get aboard now. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast. Aw, shit. The Mother Shop! You know, if you think I get you when I come out of a low voice into it, I get myself too. Go through the archive today. It's 605.com. <laughs> I killed myself there. <laughs> of course, available wherever you find your favorite podcast, the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. Yeah. Ooh. All right. Let's get to the, to the uh, other side of the street here, the AEW program this past Wednesday night, because there's big news going on. None of it's on television. Not a lot of big news on TV, but there's big news going on in the company. And uh, there was an element of tip-off of that in the first segment on the TV program with uh, our returning champion. Finally, he's back. Luck Mussolini! With an annoying hangnail. Here comes Punk, straight out of the box. And he's got a live interview, and he gets the big CM Punk chance. They're in Charleston, West Virginia, the uh, the home of Tudor's Biscuit World. That people are up and they're ready to go. And there was not a lot of time wasted on this, Brian, because he took the microphone, he gave the initial happy talk, 
connected with the audience, and then sat down cross-legged in the middle of the ring and challenged Hangnail Adam Page to a rematch right here, right now. Let's go. And nothing happened. And no music. And Jim Ross is like, do we, do we know if Hangman's here? And Punk waits, and nothing happens. And then Punk gets up and says, that's not cowboy shit, that's coward shit. And then he says, let me give you some advice that I suggest you take. And that was a very key word. Let me give you some advice that I suggest you take. The apology must be as loud and public as the disrespect. And if anybody else back there has a problem with the champ, come on down. No takers. It was not written in the format for there to be any takers, and nobody got froggy and jumped. Should we talk about the rest of the promo, or should we delve deeper into this now? Brian, what do you think? The punk hangman stuff? Yes. Yeah, because I guess the second part of the promo is a whole different thing, so we should probably, if we're going to talk about it, talk about it here. Okay, so apparently, from what we are now hearing from a variety of sources, including people on Twitter and even Uncle Dave, who we know has the the pipeline over there in that company, a lot of people started out, well, what, what the fuck was that? And they, they heard that Punk went into business for himself, that Paige was never scheduled to come out, that everybody was shocked and amazed that... Uh, that he had said that because nobody knew anything about it. And as well, they were starting to say, well, he's unprofessional for doing that because it buried old hangman, buried Adam Page. But then some more details started coming out, and I started seeing this yesterday on Twitter, and then Uncle Dave has a report on it in this week's Observer, I guess. I'm not going to... They're long sentences with not a lot of punctuation, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but summarizing and the Reader's Digest version is apparently, remember, Brian, when Page and Punk were in the main event of the pay-per-view earlier this year, Punk was about to beat Page and win the title, and they had a live interview on Dynamite, and at the time we said, what in the fuck was this? Did did they have something that they thought Paige was going to just be great at delivering and and he just melted down and botched it all? Or did he, was he turning heel in the middle of the ring, accusing Punk of, you know, being all of this and that, and we got to protect AEW from you? It was something that the shit he was saying had no bearing on any of the way that this match or any of these people had been presented, and it was speaking in riddles and one of those deals where the smart fans are going to know, but everybody else thinks this guy's a raving, you know, just gibberish. And we even said, was was he trying to turn heel or did he just not realize he was doing it because he sounded like such a whiny little bitch? Yeah, even the smart fans didn't know. Yeah, well, apparently. That was Paige doing the same thing to Punk. Going off the, the beaten path, off the topics that had been discussed in order to take up for his company and his friends and the people who started this revolution. 
because there was also there was something Paige did an interview somewhere recently and it was excerpted on Twitter and on the internet where they asked well with all of the veterans and the great stars of the past and the you know the people who have so much experience in this business like Jim Ross and Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and Mark Henry and this guy and that guy does Paige ask them for advice and he said, well, they may, uh, they may give me some advice every once in a while. Yeah, I guess I'll listen. But really, I don't think I need to ask for advice from these people because I'm part of the movement that started this company and this revolution, and I've, we've done just fine, so do we really need that advice? Yeah, you butterfly jean-wearing dipshit, you really do need the advice, or elsewise, if you'd taken it, you might actually be over now instead of a whiny little bitch. So he said that, and Punk's verbiage was, let me give you some advice I suggest you take. So apparently, not only does Hangnail tell everybody he doesn't like to take the advice of people that are smarter and more experienced than him, but Maybe he hadn't been taking advice from the guy that's trying to get him over working with him because it's not the opposite. I believe I'll paraphrase a line from Mr. Punk. Punk didn't have to work with Paige. Paige needed to work with Punk to get in a main event that he deserved. And then if we find out that Paige was doing the same thing that they have accused Mr. Punk of here this week, being unprofessional by going into business for himself. And that was before, this was a TV promo where Punk expressed a few opinions and then went on to the meat of the matter, his opponent, John Moxley. When Page apparently went to business for himself with his inexplicable rambling that he wasn't talented enough to pull off to where anybody would get it. That was before the main event of a pay-per-view. As I recall, that was one of the bigger houses, gates, and overall revenue-producing nights in the history of the company. And this fucking jack-off is out there trying to make up his own shit that he's, let's put it this way, not as he, not only is Adam Page not a lyrical wordsmith, he can barely fucking read the cue cards. So he didn't need to try to be jousting with Punk anyway. And that's why I think Punk looked so confused when he was doing it because they had to have a plan when they went out there and it had to make sense or elsewise they wouldn't have gone out there until it did, as long as Punk was involved. But when old Hangnail bows up and starts doing a bunch of shit that doesn't make any sense, how is Punk good? Is he going to be unprofessional and say, you know, you just you just said a bunch of shit that I don't understand and you're not supposed to say, so I don't know what to say back to you because you're a fucking idiot. What's he supposed to do? He's trying to sell a pay-per-view. They're lucky enough to have a mainstream wrestling star that hasn't degenerated into a parody of himself doing song and dance routines over dinner and constantly changing his gimmick and latching on to other people to help buoy his sinking career they've got a money generator cm punk and they've got a entitled whiny fragile 
not susceptible to advice or criticism, little cowboy. Cowboy. Want to be a cowboy, baby? With my butterfly jeans and my pink t-shirt. Cowboy, baby. They're grating on each other is what we're trying to say. And there's no leadership in this company. We've talked about that every week. Tony will not put his foot down because Tony don't have a foot. He's got a couple of chicken feet. He's got claws. So now it's all breaking down. And you got the people who are in the business to do business and make money and get over and or fucking sell tickets or whatever. And you've got people that got in business to take a billionaire's money because they think they're talented for some unknown reason. Somebody has convinced them they know what they're doing. And they now want to get all their friends jobs. And if their friends don't have jobs or jobs that they want them to have, then they get mad and then they hijack the program to petulantly fucking protest. Have I summarized this approximately from what we're hearing now from Uncle Dave and a variety of people about this situation that now has come to a head, but has been simmering for a while? I guess so, and I want to make a statement, so I'm going to just reiterate it for a second. The go-home promo, the face-to-face promo before the pay-per-view where Punk won the AEW championship, Adam Page decided on live TV with the biggest star in the company opposite him to whatever you want to say, go off script, even though there's not really a script, but he decided to go into business for himself. He went rogue. He was the rogue cowboy. (laughs) And CM Punk, to his credit, played it off perfectly. I don't understand what you're so mad about because he didn't understand what was going on at the time. Right. We're now led to believe, we'll talk about this in a little bit, that it was apparently Adam Page taking up for Colt Cabana. (laughs) But let me ask you this, a a bigger thing I'm thinking, and maybe I'm just thinking as a businessman here, even though I'm not a promoter, but Adam Page, right before this big pay-per-view, does this on TV live to the biggest star in the company. He's lucky Punk would do business with him at the pay-per-view. I wouldn't have. Yeah, well, here's the thing. when you double-cross somebody on live television to try to get the advantage, whether it's verbal or physical, how do you ever trust that person again? And so, yeah, if if that's the case, if Punk had wanted to make a fucking issue out of it, he could say, well, you know what? The motherfucker, the little Weasley bastard that nobody ever heard of two years ago, he double-crosses me on live national television. Who's to say he's not going to double-cross me on live national pay-per-view? So fuck you, Tony. Get a replacement for me because I'm the money match, not the fucking idiot that you thought would be a good champion because he spent two years tap dancing with twinkle toes. So that again, what, where do these guys get their balls from? Who do they think they are? They don't have a firm grasp of their status in the community or in the wrestling pecking order. They think they're over. Because Tony Khan doesn't tell them what to do. But when they get talent out there that does know what to do and they can't follow instructions, they need to either follow or get the fuck out of the way. But I guess we got Paige out of the way for right now. So apparently we'll we'll see what happens. If, if Paige is a cowboy, let him bulldog punk. You know, a lot of people say, well, Punk proved he couldn't fight in the UFC. Well, he's had two more fights in the UFC than Adam Page has, which is two. And he's done the training. 
and he's got a little bit of the fucking technique. So if I was just going to place some money on somebody's head in a fight between Adam Page and CM Punk, I'm not betting on the guy wearing butterflies on his crotch. He's lucky Punk didn't kick his ass in the back right after that segment. Seriously, because Punk could have. Well, he could, he could, here's the thing. There's not a lot of goddamn Gracie family members in AEW. There's a few of them there that have the credentials and have the fucking capability, and they're mostly fucking decent people. But all the goddamn assholes couldn't whip cream with an outboard motor and couldn't say suey if the hogs had them. So I think Punk's UFC fucking record would uh, trump the goddamn time they told the guy off at the indie show in, in Pomona or Reseda or wherever the fuck they're at. Anyway, let's get on to John Moxley. Oh, God, I can't believe I said those words. Punk goes on and turns his attention to the money match coming up at the pay-per-view, or at least so we thought still at this time. And this was fucking great. He said, ah, John Moxley, and they cheer. Yeah, he's number one in your heart, but not in this ring. Moxley is the third best guy in his own group, and that's a reoccurring theme in his career. Holy shit, they, they, you could have... You could have fucking shaved a goddamn gorilla on the sharpness of these comments. He said, Moxley says he breaks bones, but only one of us has broken a bone in the last few months, and that's me. It was mine, but still. I mean, because he's making fun of this fucking guy. This Dracula that drinks blood and breaks bones and grinds them to make his bread. The third best, and Eddie Kingston, I guess, just because of Whatever, Eddie Kingston is the third best Eddie and the second best Kingston he's ever worked with. And he said that Moxley was not even the first John he was going to beat for a title in Chicago, talking about Cena. So, after that onslaught, they play Moxley's music, and here come the plumber. And Punk actually says, I think I've got time before he gets here, I'll do some snow angels. And he lays <laughs> down in the ring and does snow angels in the ring, waiting for Moxley to do his fucking... How long is it going to be before somebody? That was somebody. Can somebody just give John Moxley a locker room inside the building? It's been years now. And then I Brian, it, it was it was honestly like you see an independent show where you have a star that's got his shit together and is recognized and people know who he is and he's coming to work with the local indie guy. And they're trying to work with each other, but one guy looks like a star that's together and composed and articulate, and the other guy looks like he's fucking trying to do a promo for smart fans and talk himself into it. And he did Moxley did the spooky voice indie style stuff, and then Punk said, Well, you you can be the heart and soul of AEW, I'll be the dollars and cents. <laughs> Just, uh, and there was some more of the fighting spirit horseshit from Moxley. And he bows up at Punk, and Punk says, I'm afraid if I touch you, you'll just bleed all over me. God damn, I lost it. And then, of course, Moxley kisses Punk, and then they have the fight. And Jesus Christ, for a guy who literally likes to pummel people into jelly with his bare hands, according to him, Moxley can't throw a punch to save his life, can he? You know, his elbows in the matches we talked about, those have looked really bad, but he's in the middle of a brawl, and that was the thing that kind of took me out of the whole thing, was 
immediately you know, okay, this part is now they're working together because his punches look so shitty. They look yeah. so bad. And conversely, when he gets hit with somebody with a punch, he doesn't move his head at all, so everybody else's punches look like shit. And and then punk also the way Moxley got in there and was throwing the back and forth punk is it, they couldn't have a decent one two punks having to kind of lean over the top and throw them down at him. I don't know, but uh, the security hits and they pull them apart and they come back together and they pull them apart again and Moxley leaves and then he comes back but then he leaves again. And that was so that wasn't a bad way to start out the show. And at least we know Punk is back, and now we've established, okay, now we know our main event for the pay-per-view for another three segments. Um, and at least they had some excitement. People were into it. Forgive me for not remembering. Was this the part, or was it later in the show when Claudio came out and manhandled Moxley like a little That's kid? the second time. Okay. That's the second. He picked him up around the waist, and his feet were going wee, 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 wee off the ground. Um... But anyway, uh, closing thoughts on this segment, or have we gone too long already? I mean, it just depends on if you want to talk about any of the other things about the backstage stuff in AEW, or you want to save that for later, because... Well, let's save it for the individuals involved. They'll be back out. Um, Hobbs was in the back doing a promo, and son of a gun... Maybe somebody's, maybe it's Hobbs is listening. He threatened people. If you interrupt me this week, I'm going to fucking spinebuster you. Because he was with Tony Schiavone and he got a chance to do the whole promo and nobody interrupted him. And he actually explained why he turned on Ricky Starks because Starks was okay with losing. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest reason. That's the reason they gave him. I'm not blaming him for that. But it was a good promo. He's, he needs to get a little more confident. Maybe have a little more conviction to him. But it was a good promo. But he's a heel and he's just talking about why he turned on Ricky Starks, and then he threatens QT and his guys, too, who are also heels and underneath heels. So is Hobbs a top guy that's a top heel that's fucking with Ricky Starks, who's getting a push as a babyface, or is Hobbs an undercard fucking guy that's fucking with other undercard heels? Why is I don't, I don't know. It's... He wasn't given great material, and I don't like the idea of being involved with QT and that whole bunch, unless it's just a quick win, but it's a good start to actually hear Hobbs speak. What'd you think? I was happy to hear him speak, but I agree to your bigger point, which, and this is nothing personally against QT or any of the guys in his group, because, you know, it's them and there's other examples of it. When someone's got something going on, it feels like they always get dragged down a step because they get put in some at least two weeks, sometimes three week little feud with people we don't care about before we get to see them do something we do care about. But and we're not, just saying we, we're, we're not just saying we, you and me don't care about, we're talking about we, as in we, the people yeah. do not care. Nobody. Is there anybody on earth except their immediate family that because of their presentation and their spot on the card and what they've done in the past cares about QT and his, and the boys solo, comodato, go, go. Nobody is just, uh, well, we're about to pick up some time on this program. I, 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 I think Brian Danielson is one of the best in-ring wrestlers in the world. He was a tremendous world champion caliber heel about six months ago for about three weeks. He can work his ass off. He's got a great promo when he's motivated. 
but he's not Merlin the fucking magician. 30 minutes, 30 minutes of Brian Danielson versus Daniel Garcia, two out of three falls on national cable television. Can you imagine if they gave that spot to a Ricky Starks? Can you imagine if they gave that spot to anybody with any fucking potential whatsoever in the next three to five years to sell a fucking ticket? Somebody with personality. Somebody with goddamn oomph to them. Somebody that doesn't look like another interchangeable white boy on an indie show doing wrestling holes. It's lost him over a hundred thousand viewers. I was going to ask you. If you I was going to ask you if you saw the quarter hour ratings. Somebody did send me a little bird. Sent me the information, and they started out with one million one hundred and four thousand viewers for Punk and Moxley, and they actually only dropped after that was over with for Brian and Garcia. They only dropped. Less than 100,000, about 90,000 to see Brian Danielson against Daniel Garcia. But by the time that the people realized that this thing was going for half an hour, the second quarter of that match dropped over another 100,000. And the only thing that brought them back was the next segment when we saw Mox and Punk again. They got the 100,000 back. But I, I'm I'm sure I I didn't watch this obviously, and Brian, you may tell me you had the patience, but I knew what it was going to be. It was going to be a fine wrestling match with Brian Danielson doing everything he could to make Daniel Garcia competitive and make him look like he can wrestle. And I'm sure he did a fine job of that. But he was also working competitively two out of three falls for half an hour with a guy that honest to God, folks, he didn't steal my dog. He hasn't shit on my front porch. I'm just telling you he's been over pushed and under fleshed out. They started using him from the start on every television show because somebody likes him, I guess, personally, he's got no charisma. He's got no gimmick. He's got no personality. He's got no promo. In five years, he might grow up enough to have one. But right now, zilch. And you're so what you're doing is you're pouring good talent in Brian Danielson or anybody else that tries to bring Daniel Garcia up to their level right now. You're pouring all that talent down a well and you're not getting anything back. Because I don't care how good his fucking matches are. It's the same thing as Yuta without a look and personality and charisma and some promo and some psychology and a concerted push, not just a goddamn 100 mile an hour, we're going to let him beat everybody in three weeks, but a long-term, steady, continual climb with certain stumbling blocks along the way. Daniel Garcia is going to be selling the same amount of tickets this this time next year as he is this year, which is none. So 30 minutes on national TV with one of the best wrestlers in the world winning two out of three by the skin of his teeth against an unknown indie guy who in his current incarnation 
is as exciting as a traffic uh, fucking cop. You know, he, he, why did they pick the people they pick to do the things they do with them? And then there's people that they get handed. Look at let Wardlow go out there and power bomb Brian Danielson in five minutes, one, two, three, and that'll get a motherfucker over. Send Daniel Garcia out for 30 minutes against Brian Danielson. Brian Danielson wins. That loses 100,000 viewers. What'd you think? You please the fans who want the work rate or whatever you want to call it, but you ignore the bigger picture. I agree with your overall thought that down the road, there may be something there with Yuta and Garcia. Right now, both look really young and both look really skinny. Um, you know, Yuta has the Moxley problem where his elbows, and when he tries to lay him in, they doesn't lay him in at all. But, you know, kind of makes me think of the Triple H discussion earlier. It makes me think of the Eric Watts push. The big difference is they have fans there who will accept what they're trying to do. So they are cheering Yuta. They, I don't know, let's say they cheer Garcia and he's done the worst promos ever. But they'll watch Garcia and try to get into his work rate. But I think to the bigger picture, these guys are being stuffed down people's throats on TV. And I don't think it's what people want right now. Maybe down the road. Maybe when they fill out a little bit. Maybe, like you said, develop them a little bit. We saw Daniel Garcia just popped up on TV. And then he was in six-man matches with 2.0. And then they were part of the Jericho thing. And now, all of a sudden, he's beating Brian Danielson. And then Yuta just showed up on TV. Moxley and them decided they wanted to do something with him, so they just did it without thinking if it's the time or the place or the right way to do it. Or the person. And now we're stuck with these guys. Meanwhile, we're celebrating Powerhouse Hobbs getting to speak. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, when you say there are other guys out there, Ricky Starks, I don't like that they turned him babyface, but now I just want to see him used well. There are guys there. He wasn't even there. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Apparently, from what I heard, there were a lot of people there who weren't used, which is a whole nother story. Apparently, there's a whole lot of people flying into these shows and staying at very cozy hotels. Hey, at least at least Tony Khan, he bought Ring of Honor, and now they're really going to be happy because last time I was with Ring of Honor and we, we ran Charleston, West Virginia, we were allowed six plane tickets for the whole card and they wanted everybody to double up at the Hampton Inn. Now, Tony's Tony's an international goddamn travel agent flying people all over the world to come watch a show and stay at the fucking Hemsley Palace. You bring a Ring of Honor, and this isn't meant as an insult, but Garcia and Yuta feel to me like classic Ring of Honor wrestlers. Yeah. Not guys you would see on national TV getting the push right out of the gate. Young guys that you could bring along, because that's where Kyle O'Reilly and Adam Cole were at one point in Ring of Honor, and they were young, and we used them in the middle underneath where they could get some experience, and they grew up and came along. And then, of course, Adam shrank and went along. But, um, but the, the, Udo nor Garcia would not be main event guys in Ring of Honor because of the, the again, not in my Ring of Honor at least because personality and ability to the experience to go out and be a television fucking performer instead of just going out and doing indie style wrestling matches. That's not saying they'll never get it, but they ain't got it now. And this, what this is going to do is besides the fact it's going to just 
make people sick and fed up with them because, goddamn, give me a break. Also, it's going to give them the impression that they are already main event guys and they don't need, like the other dipshit, hangnail. He's already a main event guy. He doesn't need any work, doesn't need any help, doesn't need any advice. They keep pushing him like this and patting him and making over him and say, oh, yeah, you're doing great. Well, they are doing great with what they're being given. It's not their fault that the creative is fucking caca. But, you know, I don't expect them to say, don't push me, I don't deserve it. But they shouldn't be pushed because right now they don't deserve it. Hey, on the topic of Danielson, you know, I get that he's going to do what he wants to do. And we all have to remember that. But, and this is where, you know, someone needs to talk to him about maybe stuff or you do something else. I'm not going to rehash the blown opportunity with him. I'm just going to ask you the question. Does he mean as much today in AEW as he did a year ago when he came in? Oh, good God, no. Because now he's there. Because Punk and, still means a lot. Like, Punk didn't lose that. You yeah. know, like, Moxley well, means as much today as he did when he came in. Danielson means less today. Punk is not going to just allow himself to be put in a group with some of his friends so that the his star power can be spread to them rather than the other way around. And Punk is not going to go out there and get juice for a fucking guy and go 30 minutes with a fucking guy that nobody could recognize if he walked down the fucking street tomorrow. And he's not, Danielson is too nice and is not cognizant enough of his status in the wrestling business and what he could do business-wise for this company if he wasn't so nice and trying to play with everybody equally. But that's just me. But we've lost we've lost 200,000 viewers after that match from the start of the show. Well, how do we get some of them back? Tony Nese and Mark Sterling walking down the entrance ramp. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible. And then Moxley wipes him out. And he gets the microphone, and he challenges Punk for the unification match right now. And here comes Punk. And they have another fight and pull apart and blah, 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 and chaos going on and everything. And that, apparently, just people seeing what was going on got him back up over a million viewers for that quarter hour, even though this was not 15 minutes worth. And they came back briefly and then left because they didn't get any more Punk and Moxley. And I'll tell you something. Here's another reason why they lost some viewers. Next, the top of the hour, 9 o'clock Eastern. And Brett, we've talked enough about the top of the hour that everybody knows why the top of the hour is significant. That's why that's when people are changing, uh, changing channels, finding something else to watch on TV. Vince McMahon would fucking take a stick to you and beat you over the head with it. If you had anything less than major firepower going to the ring at the top of an hour and to a lesser extent at the bottom of an hour, if you could time it right, because people switch from 30 minute programs. But at the top of this hour, they've had Paige out there. They've had Punk out there. They've had Danielson out there. <laughs> the top of the hour is the varsity blondes against the gun club coming to the ring. And I wrote top of the hour, this match, what the fuck? And I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it, but here, 
And as soon as they ring the bell, and it's over. The guns gave Griff Garrison, pushed Pillman off the apron of the ring, gave Griff three bumps and a finish, one, two, three. I assume because either the Moxley Punk promo or the Danielson match or both went drastically long and they had to cut time. But thanks for coming, Varsity Blondes. Jesus Christ. And then here comes Billy Gunn in and does a promo and is praising his boys. And that's what I wanted to see out of you guys. And then old Stokely comes out on the entranceway and Billy looks at him and the gun boys jump their father and beat the shit out of him. And then the acclaimed run down and save Billy and the heels run off and they scissor daddy. So now we are expected to believe that even though I'm sure people around their neighborhood will see them riding down the road together all the time, uh, Billy and his sons don't like each other anymore. That's that's where we're at right now, right? They're going to believe that one, aren't they? Like a brother versus brother, a father versus son thing always works. Do you have a problem inherently with father versus son or just the way this was done? Just to be clear. Well, I mean, it, it, this was done like shit because it just... You know, I, I, the match was just to get them out there, and then they did the angle, which they've been teasing somewhat, and anybody could see coming, but you can't believe that the kids are going to be beating up the father just like brothers never wanted to do angles. And it's just too hard to make people... Well, now they don't care about people believing it. But before, guys would stay away from doing angles with their brothers because it was hard to make people believe it. And if Dory and Terry, the only way they ever had one match, the one match in Japan was it was the finals of a tournament. It had to be that way. But most brother angles do not, do not work. And this is, I don't remember a father and son angle. Do you? Where they were against each other? If there was a father something, it probably would have been in Memphis just because they had more fathers and sons after a while yeah. than any other place. I just, I would have liked to have seen, uh, the guns are fucking fantastic, the kids. I would have liked to have seen them with Billy because, you know, then that makes sense. Because they still need maybe a little mouthpiece or a little somebody in the corner, but whatever. Nevertheless. How about the Speaking pop, of, how about the pop oh, the acclaimed gut? Oh, they love them. Of course, now, how long has it been since we've heard him rap? I just said it on the other show how funny it was. Ever since you brought up how much you liked his rapping, he hasn't rapped, and it happened again. And the, the, the last time he rapped, I was so mad because it was a dumpster match that I didn't bother to write it down, and then they haven't done it again. But speaking of mouthpieces and people that need one, Jungle Boy wandered out to the ring, and apparently he was wearing a shirt that said somebody is a pussy a few weeks ago because he said he was asked to never wear the t-shirt again, but it hit the nail on the head. And then he started to say to, well, it was Christian, that Christian was a pussy later on and he got interrupted. But I mean, does Jungle Boy have it? Is it going to come out? If it, if it was, would it have come out by now verbally speaking on television, having any kind of passion or emotion are all People of his age bracket, this boring no, and no, no, bland no, and blasé no. these days. No, Is that a thing it's now? It's him. It's not everyone in his age bracket. There are people who could tell a story, talk, or, or entertaining in general. I think, in terms of on the mic, 
He has shown no skills whatsoever as a babyface. I think the only hope you have is actually if he was a heel. He's shown himself to be able to be snotty on the mic, to be heelish on the mic. But as a babyface, he didn't even raise his voice. He was just out there talking. And I was like, where's this going? This is terrible. And it went on way too long. And he shouldn't be out there doing promos. And everyone should know that by now. I don't see how the fuck he could be a heel unless he had it. Unless the dinosaur was a heel and his partner, that may be something. Cause then you'd have a little prick instigating shit, but could jungle boy instigate anything? You think, could he really get in under anybody's skin? Jungle boy is a chicken shit heel with Luchasaurus as his muscle. If could he do it? Could he pull that off? Could he emote boy? as a chicken shit? That's yes. I can't say if he could or couldn't. That's very well. Anyway, he uh, he started talking about Christian Cage, and people started whatting him because they weren't listening to him. But then here came Christian, and it was the way he was talking. Well, yeah, it just there's no passion there. There's no conviction, whatever. But when Christian came out, immediately people stopped whatting, and Jungle Boy challenged him for all out, and Christian comes out and declines the challenge. (laughs) And wants to fix things. He's great. Christian is doing his best promo work. He wanted to fix things. He wanted to make it up to Jungle Boy. He said, I love you. And the crowd's chanting, bullshit, bullshit. But they didn't what Cage because he's got delivery and material. And they wanted to listen to it. And he commands the room verbally. But anyway, when he said, I love you and let's have a hug, then Jungle Boy double-legged him and tackled him and threw about 47 fake punches at him, and Christian cut him off for a second, but Jungle Boy came back and stomped Christian's arm in the stairs and then bashed his head into the steel stairs over and over and did all of that without still looking like he wanted to hurt anybody. They were going through the motions. Christian was selling his ass off, but Jungle Boy don't go crazy. Jungle Boy just gets mildly perturbed. Um, Why did they stomp Christian's arm? Is he going to be injured? Is he out? Why did the the babyface beat up the heel in this fashion before the match is announced? I'm not sure I know what's going on. We'll find that he can't wrestle and he has Luchasaurus's contract. And Luchasaurus has to wrestle in his stead. Eh, the only thing wrong with that is then we can't see Christian Cage wrestle. <laughs> we got to watch the other two. Uh, speaking about watching the other two, did you love the incredible amount of television time that Wardlow and FTR got this week? My God, you know, Daniel Garcia, he only gets 30 minutes. But Wardlow, the biggest homegrown star they've got, and FTR, the most over tag team in wrestling now got a backstage promo for 45 seconds about a six-man tag with Jay Lethal, Sanjay Dutt, and Zippy the Giant Pinhead. So we get this instead of FTR Bucks 3 because the Hardly Boys are jealous and refuse to put FTR over in the big one. No, I think this is... Booking 2.0, next generation booking, next level booking. How do you capitalize on the buzz of a tag team that had a groundswell of support that the fans finally on their own lifted up and would carry out of the arena? What do you do? You keep them off TV, and when you do show them on TV, give them 90 seconds. 
And they're going to be in a six-man tag with a guy that they had to admit on their interview that they nobody understands why that they're standing alongside Wardlow and they're wrestling one of the top talents in the business and his manager and fucking giant cohort that can't stick his thumb in his ass on the first try. Is that next week or is that Friday? I I, I don't remember. Because if it's know. Friday, no one's going to see it. Friday, nobody's going to see it anyway. Yeah. So that's You got that going for you. Uh, and now, you know, a lot of people uh, doubted us when we say the reason why this match was changed was because the Hardleys are jealous of FTR and they don't want to put them over and do business the right way. And they want to play with their friends and they want to bring their trampoline cowboys in to so they can have their kind of matches and, and they can have some belts. So they they gave a team that nobody believes is the best team in the company the t- world tag team title so that they couldn't be accused of not wanting to do a job. They just wouldn't do it to FTR. And then they bring another one of their buddies back so they can all play together and have the six-man belts. And it's funny how these things work out exactly how we predict they're going to, Brian. I actually don't think there's anyone who has the track record that this show has in terms of saying things that are going to happen to AEW before they happen and saying things behind the scenes that are going to happen before they happen. Well, now, sometimes we only say it like a year ahead of time. Like, it, was, it wasn't more than a year ahead of time that you're the one that said that Cody Rhodes would be the first executive vice president that would leave because he'd have problems coexisting with the other numbskulls. And have a brighter future. Well, beyond even just Cody, we talked about general problems backstage amongst the executive vice presidents, the story that a lot of people ignored until they didn't. But we talked about it before anyone. Well, and we mentioned uh, that also that the Hardly Boys would probably be bringing back douchebag number one. If if James Brown could be soul num- brother number one, then I think that old Harpo can be douchebag number one. So the six-man tournament begins with Andre Oliolio and Roosh and Dragon Lee against the Hardly Boys and their mystery partner. And it was obviously not a mystery. We called it about six weeks ago what was going to happen. Why do people keep doubting us? Because we say a lot of things with laughter. We say a lot of things in a joking fashion. You say things bad about wrestlers that people love, and that's, of course, a mortal sin. So because of that, when we say shit, it's, oh, what does he know? He's on the Jim Cornette show. Or what does he know? He's irrelevant. And then it's like, oh, shit, they were right again. Almost like they know what they're talking about. Well, in this one, help me figure this one out. Now, Andre is a heel. and. Dragon Lee hadn't been around till now, and Rush was here once. But the Hardly Boys, they just switched babyface because, well, their feelings got hurt by their other friends not wanting to team with them. So they had to go get their original friend, who they bring out, obviously, Kenny Olivier, the greatest wrestling artist in the world. But when, when Olivier left last, he was a heel. And he had a heel manager, Don Fallis. And he had a heel hanger on, Michael, knock it, knock it, knock it the fuck off and get off my television. So now they've brought Kenny back, Kenny back to team with them now that they're baby faces against these other heels. But the thing that happened that never happened 
was that not only did Kenny never turn babyface, but Phallus came out with him. Even if Kenny is a babyface now by virtue of the fact that he is coming to the aid of his friends, the Cucamonga kids who just switched babyface because they got their feelings hurt that their other friends wouldn't team with them anymore. Why is Don Fallis necessary? He's a heel manager to a heel champion. Remember what they were trying to go for was the modern-day version of Bockwinkle and Heenan, although, boy, <laughs> oh, yeah. talk yeah, about really. when, you, when you order something from Neiman Marcus versus from fucking Great Value or whatever. But now Don Fallis comes back and the babyface partner of the new babyfaces has a heel manager that nobody likes and has never tried to be a nice guy. So why did the heel manager have to come back with, with uh, does this make sense? None of the heel babyface stuff here makes any sense. Here's a bigger question. How many weeks ago were the Bucks turned on? Was it two weeks ago? Two, we, three, whatever. Have we seen Adam Cole and those guys since then? Have no. they done a promo following up on it? Have we heard a peep about any of that? I don't think so. Well, let's just talk about this match, because that won't take long, and then we'll get to the aftermath of the whole thing. Um, Andre Rush and Dragon Lee, Hardly Boys, and Kenny Olivier. So 30 seconds in, they're the flying Walendas. And Rick Knox is the referee, so nothing's going to, no rules are going to be, uh, uh, you know, held to, and they're going to do anything they want. They're in and out. Why was... Twinkle Toes wearing a superhero costume shirt with fake muscles built in. They called it a compression shirt, but it actually had, like the old in the old days when George Reeves was Superman, they put foam rubber in for his bigger chest, shoulders, and arms. There was goddamn built-in muscles in his shirt. Was that a regulation therapeutic shirt? I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what it was. I'm not sure if he has Sabu scars he's trying to cover up, but maybe this is part of his gimmick we never understood before. The way he moves in the ring, the way he shakes. He's a guy who's been thrown into cold water. Now he's got a wetsuit. <laughs> so at one point... At a but let me stop you there, because... Okay, go ahead. For anyone who didn't see this, we've seen like Ric Flair wrestle with a shirt in the past. We've seen different people wrestle a with shirts. But with Omega, even though it was a compression shirt, something that's supposed to be worn by athletes, it felt weird seeing him wearing, because it didn't feel like something a wrestler would wear. It almost looked like he had gear on top of gear on top of gear. It, it, was, it was strange. It, was, it would look like he was padding his physique there a little bit. But hey, that's better than stuff in your crotch, right? Make your chest, your arms look a little bigger. Nothing to matter with that. It's the real heats when you stuff your crotch. Uh, did you see him try the, he's rusty. It's been 200 and some days since he wrestled. He tried his fireman's carry flip over thing and fell on his ass and just sat there and laughed at his boys and sold it. Um, so he sold something at, at, at one point, two guys tagged, t tagged in at the same time in front of the referee. And then they did a triple team. And as usual with these guys matches, it got old less than 10 minutes in because everybody's in and out back and forth doing moves. Nothing flows. Nothing makes sense. The referee's useless. The Andre Oleolio's team is sloppy as shit on their, I, I have to use quotation marks, basics for that. And it just, and then finally they built up, they kept twinkle toes in and out where he didn't have to do too much. 
But they gave him a hot tag, and this comeback was just the most ridiculous, gesticulating, exaggerating thing. And he's stancing and doing the poses and the pointing. And then all three, all three of the baby faces, quote unquote, tagged in at the same time, and the referee allowed that. And they did a prolonged six-way where nobody could keep track of what was happening. And then everybody did dives except Twinkle Toes, but then they kept foiling his dive attempts. Maybe he didn't want to do a dive and take a chance on that. Say, well, we'll just have the heels foil it. And he, at one point, sold his knee in a very phony, overly dramatic and stagey way. And then came the big spot of the match. Since Kenny can't dive, they'll bring the dive to Kenny. (laughs) <laughs> and they they go out on the floor and they take the security railing in front of the front row and they pull it closer to the ring by about, what, two feet. And they sit Kenny up on the railing. I don't know where his partners in crime were at this point to prevent this because all three of the heels are on him. And then Dragon Lee, the one with the mask on the other team, he does the dive. And they both go over the rail into the crowd and smack a little girl in the front row right in the fucking face. And then the camera shoots both the wrestlers laying there, but they won't widen out to shoot the the girl selling and people standing up and trying to get out of the way of these goddamn uninvited dinner guests that have just dropped in to their laps and there was the it was almost like let's do Cornette's spot, the spot that he calls every week when we do shit like this. We'll go too far, we'll go over the rail, we'll hit a little kid in the face, we'll get sued, Tony's out of business, and we're all on the fucking soup line. And by gum, yes, since they were in Charleston, West Virginia, to answer everybody's question, they're asking mentally, the little girl did get Stephen P. News business card. What you and they had to completely ignore the fact that's what that it is. They're standing in front of children, four feet behind them, with this fucking goofy idiot diving headfirst out of the ring over the top rope, coming a hundred miles an hour, and they're in front of women and children. Thankfully, this crew wasn't on the Titanic. Elsewise, all the kids and the fucking women would have been swimming and sleeping with the fishes and the sharks. What a stupid and unnecessary idea this spot was. And anyone watching at home, as soon as they started doing it, if anyone listens to this show that was watching that, as soon as you saw them going for it, you said, oh my God, there's a kid right behind the dead center. I hope they don't do something near the kid. And what do you know? They wiped the kid out. Whap! Down to the ground. Down goes the kid. Uh, More goofy bumps in this match. And then after all this chaotic stuff that they've done and all these wild moves, they're not smart enough. They don't know how to build up to an exciting finish. So when they finish doing all the moves that they can do, then old Kenny hits two of those Canterbury knee lifts, the little skippy thing, the little the V trigger from his video game. And then barely gets the guy up for the one-winged fairy, one, two, three, and the flattest finish. After they do all that stuff, instead of building up to a slam-bang finish, as Toots Mont would say, 
they just grab one of the heels and beat him flat. Just that's it. Ah, after all that chaos. So that was the match that lost them 200,000 viewers. And then as the baby faces, allegedly the Cucamonga kids and Harpo get out of the ring there's 15 seconds left on the air, and the other two, Rush and Andre, turn on their partner and pull his mask off. Why? And why did they do it literally seven seconds before they went off the air? I was going to say, don't say 15 seconds. It was a lot quicker than that. Well, that's when they started looking at him with evil intent. What, what was that? Who's on whose side here? And why it, it, did, did they either have the time to do the angle or don't do the fucking angle? And why are we doing the angle when the guy didn't, he got beat, but he didn't fucking fuck up his partners. He just got beat in a flat, unconvincing fashion. So they got to rip his mask off and turn on him. I thought one of them was the other one's brother. Uh, yeah, one of them is the other one's brother. So they got, now they got the, the, the sons turning on the father <laughs> and the brother against brother. My God, it's, it's, it's chaos here. It's a civil war family against family. You get a good mutter against a fodder. They don't do angles with the wrestlers that the fans want them to do stuff with. They do angles with the wrestlers that the other wrestlers like. Huh? Well, so that was that main event, and that's what was on television, hey. and that's what cost them 200,000 views, but there was more in the building. What? What were you saying, hey? Was, well, you know, you actually just kind of led me to that in the building. I thought one of the interesting reactions, we're watching this show the whole night, Punk got a major reaction. I mean, everything he said, they were sitting on every word. They didn't want him like they did Jungle Boy. Moxley, whatever you want to say about him, big reaction from those fans. They were into him. I heard from people in the building, they said one of the biggest reactions... Claudio. They said the place went nuts for Claudio. Yes. On that second pull-apart, Claudio came out, and that's when he picked picked Moxley up and handled him like a small child. I guess he wrestled for one of their other shows also while he was there, and he got a big reaction. But, you know, the Bucks got an okay pop. Nothing special. Nothing like they used to. Omega got a big pop for coming out. Big surprise pop. And then what happened? That wore that off match? quickly. During that match, there were the little bursts of this is awesome when things weren't really that awesome, and then dead silence. Dead silence. They were begging people to cheer for them. The Bucks would yell, come on! Come on! And Omega, you know, let me hear you while I'm punching this guy. Yeah, he got up one time and like, come on, let me hear you. I can't hear you because they're not making any noise. Um, Part of it was the match. It, and it, again, it's West Virginia. They expect to see something that makes sense. It's Crockett Promotions territory back in the old days. It's a little more WCW. It's a little more down south. They expect this shit to actually be good and halfway violent looking instead of phony and illogical. And then the other thing is, okay, they got the pop. Kenny's back. And then Kenny doesn't go out and do any of the Kenny stuff that Kenny does that impresses everybody because he's obviously still fucked up and you know maybe he ought to take another six months off i'll wait it's fine hey, and those ratings but, tell a story and they're well and they're not the hot 
they're not the hot individuals anymore. Right. The hot individuals are the people that the fans have started to take to on their own rather than the people that when the show went on the air, the fans were told these are your main event stars and you're supposed to cheer for them. Now people are deciding for themselves and they like the people that work looks good and it makes sense. And they're not insufferable douchebags as personalities. Smarmy, smug, self-absorbed little fucking vanilla midgets. So that's why, that, so between the match not making any sense and being the same shit they always do, the heels are not necessarily a group of heels that people want to see, you know, lynched and hung up and strung out and run over with cars and anything bad happened to. They're just there. And then old Twinkle Toes comes back to this ridiculous, over-exaggerated introduction, and and they do very little of anything, and people were, and they made it last 20 to 25 minutes. So for all those reasons, people didn't give a shit. They thought people were going to react like they react to CM Punk for Kenny returning, and they didn't. They just didn't. I think, you know what thought did, don't you, as Mama Cornette used to say? No. He thought he farted, but he didn't. When you when you think like that, your pants fill up with shit. <laughs> does, any, does anyone actually yes. look forward to the six-man division now? The trios division after this match? That turned off so many viewers? I wasn't looking to it before this match. This wasn't good. I mean, that's the other thing. People were trying to say, like, oh, it was nice to have Kenny back. They're leaving out the part beyond you and me talking about it, and we all know what you think of this. It was a really not good match. Really not good. And people are kind of sick of seeing a lot of the Buck stuff, but I don't know. Again, the ratings tell a story here. All right, but I wasn't in the building. But I've heard tell that after the cameras quit rolling, as they say, that old Twinkle Toes, he was the one who decided to take the microphone and leave the fans to go home happy with some kind of profound rah-rah statement. Is this correct? That's true, Jim. I don't know if this was the end of the night or just right after the dynamite taping, but there is footage, uh, there's fan footage, there's official footage, all sorts of things out there of Omega and the Bucks and Phallus and uh, I think Nakazawa too, maybe, in the Cutler, in the ring afterwards for a celebratory speech, I guess. Celebratory or masturbatory? I think a little bit of both. And of course, this is a big night because CM Punk started the night, at least on Dynamite with a speech that everyone's still talking about today, a speech, a promo that everyone's still talking about today. I heard from people in the building that said, Kenny Omega just gave a rambling speech. We're not exactly sure what he was trying to get across, but he ended it by calling us cat shit. <laughs> so let's play it in a few well, parts. I, I was about to say, if there, if there was only some way that we could hear the words of the world's greatest wrestling artist to determine why he likened his fans to cat shit and why that everybody left the building saying that this guy is on the verge of a nervous mental breakdown. If only there was some way we could hear those words that came out of his mouth. Well, let's go to that. We'll break this up a few times <laughs> to discuss some of the words coming out of this man who appears to be cracking his mouth. Here it is. Kenny Omega in Charleston, West Virginia. story short, it's always a pleasure to be performing in front of you fellows. 
Oh, good God. And I thought, hey, with a main, main, with a rare main event slot tonight, I might as well take the microphone and say a couple words to you guys because I've been gone for quite some time. And if I do it in this format, I don't have to worry about how much time I take. I don't have to worry about how tired or hurt I am. I can just speak to you guys like a normal human being. Because really, then please that's start. All I am. So for the past seven, eight, nine months or whatever it's been, it's been pretty grueling. Many times I question myself, am I really gonna be able to come back to AEW and perform at the level of these professional wrestlers? And certainly, it's gonna take me a while to catch up to these guys. It might be a while before I'm able to challenge for a singles title again. But this very much is a work in progress, and I'm very glad that all of you are joining me on this journey. Well, let's stop it there for the first yeah, part. Let's stop it there for a second. First of all, I I know the the breathy phone sex voice. He is amplified after he's had a match because he's a little bit blown up, and the the sing song delivery uh, is something that he does on occasion, and it, it gives him a bigger element of douchebaggery when he has that lilting cadence to his voice. But did somebody kick him in the nuts? Because it sounds like his voice has gone up two or three. Did he have a, um, some type of hernia. Uh, surgery on his vocal cords? Oh, it was a hernia. It was a hernia. Not the vocal so cords. he, he, so he's up here like this. Cause he doesn't want to strain himself too much. I've had a couple of those. I know they can be rough, so I don't blame him for sounding like, Fucking Tinkerbell. Go ahead. Don't get it confused, however. I'm not a good guy. I might even cheat to win every now and then. But one thing that I will say is when we're in this ring, you're getting a genuine Young Bucks, Katie Omega, and Elite performance from the genuine Young Bucks and Kenny Omega. <laughs> We're not pretending to be somebody that we're not. We're not a tribute act. We're not a parody. We're not selfish. And we're not in this for selfish means and for selfish gains. We are here to leave a legacy. And that legacy isn't titles. It's not even match ratings. It's not even how much money we make for our families and ourselves. It is changing the world via changing wrestling world and the way that you guys consume it. Oh, good God. He's an insufferable cunt, isn't he? He's going to change he the way you consume wrestling. He's going to change the way that I fucking throw up after dinner. Is it, eh. How's he going to change the way I consume it? Instead of watching it, am I going to eat it? Yeah, but maybe he's going to send it to you by mental telepathy. They, these twats are convinced that they are hugely important, vastly more important than they, they actually are. And you can, but the douchebaggery drips from them every time you hear them speak. And who are they trying to identify with here? Other douchebags with sing-song voices? Who is he calling out there? We're not fake. We're not phony. Well, we're they, they real. Said they're, they're not a tribute act because, oh, guys like, I don't know, Punk and FTR, they do Bret Hart moves because they do moves that real professional wrestlers did, not 
moves that they saw right. in the matinee version of Cirque de Bolchay at in Vegas. They're not tribute acts. They're not doing DX hand signs in a fake NWO. That's not them. <laughs> not a tribute act. Not the elite. Don't call the Bullet Club a tribute act. But now they did say we're not a parody. Oh, believe me. You're a parody of a human <laughs> fucking being. You fucking curly-haired twat. You're a parody, all right. Everything you people do is a parody in wrestling. Where do we get to the cat shit? All right, let me get back to this from, what do we call him? A weeb or a weeboo? What, what was it? A weeble? A, we- a weeb, a weebo. A weeb. Here's the weebo himself, Kenny Omega. So maybe, heck, you don't like six-man tags. That's fine, because we're going to give you guys the greatest singles matches. We're going to give you guys the greatest hardcore matches, mixed matches, women's matches, all different kinds of matches. It's going to be a smorgasbord of wrestling. That was always the mission statement. And as long as the... Let me just stop it real quick, because what he said, because we cut it before, the legacy they want to leave is not the money they leave to their family or anything else. It's changing the world through changing the wrestling world, through changing the way people consume wrestling by giving them a smorgasbord of wrestling, which would be, I guess, their idea of what AEW has been up to this point. Which is a mess. That's the whole problem. The fucking marks that Tony Khan signed to be his brain trust at first thought that it would be good if they have every single kind of fucking wrestling in the world on the same show. And it's been caca because that doesn't work because it doesn't make any sense because you run off more people than you fucking attract because people who want to see legitimate, serious, competitive wrestling don't want to see the fucking silly shit and the girly men and the falderall and the fucking hurt feelings amongst the snowflake crowd. And then the, the blood and the barbed wire and the broken glass and the bullshit negates the great athletic performances of the really talented workers. So then you've run their fans off and, you know, the garbage match people will watch anything as long as they get to see their garbage. So they'll watch the show just to see somebody get sliced up and cut and bleed from asshole to appetite. But the smorgasbord is the worst idea that anybody ever had in wrestling because that's like having an action-adventure, comedy, drama, parody, period, piece, historical documentary with big bands. Let's hear more from Ty. And as long as the elite are here, you will make sure, we will make sure that you guys get that variety every time we perform. Win, lose, or draw, you're going to get our greatest effort. Win, lose, or draw. Taping, athletic tape, medical devices or not, you're going to get Kenny Omega too. Somehow. Somehow by a stroke of luck, and because these guys are better than you even know that they are, they're incredible. We were able to survive tonight. <laughs> we're alive in this tournament. It's not all of a sudden start cheering us. You guys booed us for like a year. 
Well, now they're going into shtick, obviously. I'm yeah. trying to get to Well, the- and also, you know, he said we survived it, but think of the fucking poor viewers. Oh, the humanity. Yeah, they didn't survive. They tuned out. They didn't survive. They tuned out. They went, they jumped out a window somewhere. The Real Housewives of Chattanooga were on. But let's, uh, <laughs> let's get a little bit more at the end of uh, Kenny Omega here. To- Please. Maybe I should be mad, too, because the reason why I'm in this state right now, the reason why I have to have three, sometimes four sessions of physical rehab every single day is because of you. Maybe I should hate each and every one of you because I come back out here for you guys. It's never for me. Oh, boy. It's never for me. Work so for what free. I'm going to do right now is I'm going to be a little strange. I don't get up much, so I, be- I became a strange individual. I'm going to liken you fans to a very mischievous cat that pees and poops all over the house. Boy, do I get mad when I find it. Boy, do I get mad because I have to clean it. But heck, how can I hate a little kitty cat? Oh, fuck. And there's the line of him. How, ca- how can he hate a little pussy? And he's got two of them standing right next to him. <laughs> Every time I hear this fucking guy speak, I realize that there's no way in any world, in any universe currently existing or yet to be determined where I could have stood to sit down and talk to him for three minutes. But he's, uh, you, you get Kenny with medical device. I'd like to get Kenny with a medical device. Maybe a fucking scalpel. Maybe a goddamn thing they give the colonoscopies with. Uh, so he's melting down, right? Mentally, because they can't take the pressure of the fans not buying their repetitive, phony gymnastic performances instead of gravitating toward the rougher, more accomplished, more realistic, possibly more violent, definitely more manly, uh, fucking talent that they're preferring now. No, they're all very upset because in their eyes, they still think AEW is them, not realizing AEW is Tony Khan's and his dad's. They yeah. own it. They took you guys. They signed you guys. They paid you guys handsomely. They let you guys pretend to be executives, even though no way in the world are you guys in any way executives. They let them pretend to be wrestlers for quite some time. And the company has now seen what happens when real stars like CM Punk get there. And I understand why a lot of these guys resent CM Punk. He exposed them. He exposed them by just being there. By just being, he pointed out that they aren't as big as stars as they think they are. How much of this speech do you think is directed at CM Punk? Probably the majority of it. Because, again, and we, how long have we been saying this? I think we said this at the start. You know, there's going to be a time where the few serious talents in the wrestling business that are in that company get fed the fuck up with the silliness and the falderall and the fake shit and the we're all petite friends, you know, doing our thing business and there's going to be a civil war and the lines are being drawn. You want to get over, you want to be a star, you want to make money, you want to be serious about your business or you want to play with your buddies and act like you're a big deal because you can't tell that people don't like the smell of your particular farts. I think you heard from a lot of people both directly and things that would get out to, you know, wrestling media, early on especially, oh, this is the best place I've ever worked in, this is the best locker room I've ever been in, Tony's the best boss I've ever had, I've heard from numerous people. But look at where we are now. You know, there's a difference between 
wanting to work somewhere where you could just do anything you want and you love your boss because they'll let you do anything you want and actually working someplace where there's a goal to get from A to Z so that it benefits the company and everyone involved. And it appears that the, whatever you want to call them, Camp Cucamonga. Camp Cucamonga. They like to do things their way. And if they don't get things their way, they have hissy fits. They have breakdowns. They whine. You start seeing things appear in certain wrestling media outlets with their side of things getting out there. But the fact that right now things are ending up in the Observer saying that some executives, or shouldn't say executives, some people are at their wits end with everything happening. That tells you the story. Well, the- now, and, and Uncle Dave, Uncle Dave also, let's not forget about this. He actually said, well, the big thing that started all this is Colt Cabana. Colt Cabana. Yeah. Colt Cabana is out of the dork order. There was no angle and they just stopped bringing him to TV. That's what started all this. You mean to tell me that these guys are supposed to be vice presidents of a national cable television promotion and they're supposed to be big stars in the case of page even though he's not a vice president they didn't get him a job a position they just got him a job it's over Cole cabana i can understand if 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 cm punk had come in and suddenly they had fired or diminished or sent to the side brian danielson or even jericho he's got name value or some major even Jungle Star. Boy. Even Jungle Boy, because they liked him because he got cute hair. That would have been one thing. But a fucking guy who was completely and utterly useless in every way to begin with long before that his former friend came to the company. Do you remember a Colt Cabana match? Do you remember a great Colt Cabana pro or any Colt Cabana promo? Do you remember Colt Cabana doing anything other in this company? than wrestling on fucking YouTube and standing in the middle of a group of job guys to be the most experienced job guy in that group. He wasn't pushed. He wasn't even prodded. And he meant nothing to the show, the revenue, nothing. And then, like some of the other people that fit that category, they just stopped using him. We can think of Dwarf Dong Sucker. We can think of Jelly. We can think, I mean, Tony doesn't have the balls to fire anybody, but he'll ghost him in a heartbeat. So everybody that doesn't want real stars to give them real competition in the company, well, oh, poor Coke Cabana. What could have happened? Maybe it's the guy that he turned on and and that he fucking caused all those problems to punk maybe that's it well we'll get even we'll we'll just treat punk bad because he's not in our clique our little group fuck it's a job guy that got sent home because he wasn't contributing anyway i doubt seriously if punk had anything to do with it if he had to talk very hard there was no upside to having this guy on the roster just like they've got another 30 people on the roster there's no upside to having most people don't even know they're there. So, again, these little kids can play big-time wrestling all they want, but goddamn, and you know, here's another thing, Punk and Danielson and FTR and some of these other guys, 
I doubt very seriously if you're going to hurt their fucking feelings with criticism or a mean promo or somebody saying something bad about because they've worked for the big time. They've been to the WWE. They've been to the evil empire. Those people are professional feeling herders. They'll fuck with you to the bone. So those guys are not going to be intimidated or have their feelings hurt or get their panties in a wad because the Cucamonga kids and their band of merry misfits from the Lollipop Guild say mean things about them. I have a feeling, well, except for Danielson's too nice, but the rest of them, Cash, Dax, and Punk, probably just soon punch one of those fucks in the face as look at them anyway. So they probably don't say a lot uh, in person to to uh, bring that along any. And again, the way it's being reported, the way it's now being put in print, I mean, Dave Meltzer basically said it's all because of Cabana. No one's saying it's because of Punk publicly. They're saying Cabana was not used, and all of a sudden everyone's blaming Punk, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, if Adam Page on live TV decided to do that against, again, the biggest star in the company, all because of Colt Cabana, he should have been suspended and sent home without pay because that's bullshit. That's minor league shit. I would have gone straight to the firing, but I get get your point. Yes, and and again, well, yeah, you got to hit the belt. It's your fault for putting a belt on a fucking irresponsible little jack-off like that. But um, I'm not saying you're, I'm saying Tony's (laughs) fault. But um, but that's, that's, again, what the fuck? They have no fucking concept of what they're doing and they've been handed a lot of shit and they've had a bunch of people pet them on the head and they've all convinced each other that they're geniuses and they're brilliant and they're the greatest wrestlers in the world. And they are to a very small subset of what's left of wrestling fandom. Everybody else thinks they're insufferable, wants them to go the fuck away. But anyway, I would I'd love to I'd love to see FTR and the Hardly Boys just just have one of those maybe reshoot Sissy Boy Slap Fight. That independent movie from Canada that we've all had fun watching over and over again on YouTube. I encourage everybody check it out. A great co-star in it, a guy named Tyson Smith. But I'd like to see them reenact Sissy Boy Slap Fight. I'd like to see old Maddie and Nikki Slap Dax and Cash one time, and I'd like to see the fucking receipt. And I guarantee you, if the Bucks didn't already have kids, if they did have some more, they'd be born fucking dizzy. Anyway, so that was this week in the dramas of Romper Room. Where do you think we're going from here? Who's going to crack up next? Yeah, I'm not saying this with a smile on my face or anything, but actually, I think Tony. I think Tony could be nothing but overwhelmed if we just look at everything going well, considering everything on his plate. And right now, he's got more drama backstage than when Cody was there, because a lot of that was kind of like a a Cold War (laughs) at times. (laughs) This is a little more open and hostile, obviously. It's getting out of the air. I bet Cody was proactive in trying to be a, an EVP and trying to do talent relations and trying to talk to more people because he is the type of person that would take that job and its responsibilities fairly seriously, where these other jackoffs just want to do the video game. So we'll see. Yeah. Anyway. 
Well, that was it for AEW, and that was it for what's left of the WWE, the the pr- promotion that has all the momentum. I'm still waiting for them to start rolling down that hill, and we'll jump right on and take the ride with them. And uh, what are we doing this week on the drive-through? Anything special, or it'll come to us in a in a dream? You know, I don't even know. Every week, I promise questions, and every week. And I'm not complaining, but you come up with great stuff. You've gone through your files. We went through the Weasels World recently. We do guess the program. We do the Gordon Soli trivia game. We got more Weasel World coming up, too. We got some stuff I want to talk about off of that. Some some booking uh, uh, lessons that could be learned. Is there a biography this weekend? There is a biography. It is Edge. So that might be good as well. Since we can't see him <laughs> as leader of the Judgment Day, we can see the biography of when he was over before you know that thing i'm missing that too that judgment day had a lot of fucking oomph to it and they just wrecked it three you, weeks in you know what the last couple of weeks i have raw on one of the monitors in the office but i really haven't watched it much there are a few things i look up for a few times i was walking through the office and i looked at the tv like two separate episodes i swear to god it was rhea ripley looking great Looking like a star, walking out there just like carrying Dominic Mysterio, just <laughs> dropping him down. I guess that's not her gimmick. She kidnaps Dominic Mysterio and just puts him wherever she wants. So if he's not the minch on a bench, <laughs> he's what is he on though? He's a dom on a lom. He's uh, I, I we we got nothing for him to sit on. We need to find something for Dom to sit on. <laughs> All right, to- we need to find something for for us to lay down on. All right, we'll be back on the drive-through in just several days from now. And uh, if anything happens, if the news breaks, we'll fix it. And uh, for this episode of the experience, and and uh, for all of the. Minions at the Arcadian Vanguard Network. I would like to say on behalf of all of them, thank you, fuck you, and bye bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo
much Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, mom, don't come in. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Go away, I'm watching wrestling. Ah, this is wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero. The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you do the Wi-Fi password? Oh, no! When I say nights, I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Elter says I'm in the key demo I'm 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single male, I'm in the key demo oh, Elter says I'm in the key demo